Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 148, I believe. I don't actually have that in front of me. Sorry about that. Uh, special thanks to Tyler Fredrickson, who was on the show last week. That was a great deal of fun. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your indulgence. I know that you're pro not everybody is a Survivor fan. Hopefully, there was enough discussion of other things to uh, to make that okay. Uh so I'm trying to think if there's any announcements there or not. Actually, next week's episode uh, will be posting on Wednesday instead of Thursday because I, you know, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, people are going to be very busy. They're not going to have time to listen to podcasts. But perhaps, uh, perhaps the date, maybe the 22nd, 23rd, uh, people will be more able to listen to this and then uh, implement. Uh, what we talk about in next week's episode. So just be on the lookout for that, and I'll remind you guys again at the end of this episode. And what is this episode? Well, I'll tell you. We've got, we, we have a co-host again. Uh, last week it was just me and, uh, and Tyler. Uh, but now we've got Robert Hornack. He's back. Robert, how you doing? Hey, Tyler. I'm doing very well. Okay, that's very exciting. Glad to hear it. So, <laughs> listeners, we... Uh, so Josh and I went through our individual tops 10 uh, <laughs> like a year and a half ago. And so you know what my top 10 is. You know what Josh's top 10 is. I, and then Reed uh, wrote an article series about his top 10. So <laughs> as far as the hosts of, of More Than One Lesson, uh, you know what everybody's 10 favorite movies of all time are. Wait a second. I, forget, I forgot someone. It's Robert Hornack. So it's me. This episode, we're going to go through Robert's ten favorite movies of all time. Now, that's heavy. Robert was very reluctant to do this for a number of reasons. Um, every time I've released uh, a top ten or a top hundred, Robert is the first one to uh, to uh, criticize me and, and <laughs> I say don't do I don't that. understand how you do that, and basically yeah. just criticize the whole process just because he's not man enough to do it. Uh, but I, because he's my co-host and I'm in charge of this whole thing, uh, I commanded him. That is, that's the word I used in the text. I commanded him. It's got to be a top 10, not a top seven, which is what he was thinking. It has to be a top 10. And then now, Robert, you originally were going to put an alphabetical order, which I was going to be fine with, but, uh, you, pull, you pulled an 11th hour switcheroo on me. Well, it was last night at 11, I think. You had said, you, you had said, uh, I'm planning on doing it alphabetical, which I already knew. And then mm -hmm. you left me, a, you left the door open a little bit and you said, I could probably rank them if pressed. Oh, why did like I do that. that? And I was like, well, uh, I'm <laughs> going right. to press you now. Uh, then I, I, I command you, he said. So, yes, <laughs> that's, that is when I said. And I, I respond to commands. To Absolutely. Yes. You're, you're very uh, subservient. But I think there's way. a little more backstory if I can. If, if Please I, do. You've got uh, we've got a, a lot to cover, but you know your your mentality going into this. I, I'm being facetious when I'm making fun of it. Uh, a lot of people have a hard time thinking. It's in terms very of difficult and stuff like that. No, so. I, it was my the last episode I appeared on. I believe was a Babadook, and yeah, probably somewhere during that episode, it was me and you and Reed, and you said to I think you, the Exorcist might have come up, which was which is Reed's, Reed's favorite, favorite film. Yeah. And you turned to me, like you like to do, you said, Robert, what's your favorite film? And I said... <laughs> at the, did I... I don't think I knew at the time that you don't think in terms of, of favorites of all No, I, I've mentioned it to you before. Okay. And so I had I to... I might have forgotten. I, I said, I, I don't have... I, I mean, I have favorite films, but I don't have a favorite film. I don't know how to have a favorite film. Um, 
I said typically my favorite film is like the last great movie I saw mm-hmm. or last movie that I really enjoyed or was surprised by. And you said, well, what was that? And I said, First Blood is what I said because I had recently seen First Blood. And That's indeed, yeah, exactly. Indeed, indeed I was su- surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I expected something that I did not get. I got a, a thoughtful movie. I got a movie that the action was, of course, over the top. But there was a lot of meaning to it. And so I, it was at the top of my head, so I said that. Later, well, actually in the moment I was a little embarrassed by that, but then later I got to thinking about it, and I was like, you know what? That's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing that I said that my favorite movie of all time was First Blood. Well, I think you had couched it in enough context I did. that nobody would hold you to that. I'm also, the king of caveats, so uh, I, I'm sure that I did. Caveats? Caveats? Caviar? So you're the king of caveats. I'm the prince of prefacing. Oh. That's what I. That's what I like to do. And together we are. I don't know. Uh, royalty of reluctance. Well said. Well there done. You go. Nice save. Thank you. Um, so I, th- I got to thinking, and I thought, well, in order to save face, okay, that's what it boils down to. Is mm-hmm. I, I was embarrassed by calling that my favorite film. In order to save face, I I proposed to you that I would write up an article and I would explain kind of what my favorite movies were without necessarily saying what the favorite was. Um, and then put it up as an article or a post on the website. And you said, well, why don't we do it as an episode? And I immediately became frightened because I, even then when I suggested it, I was like, I don't know how to do this. And so I've wrangled with it. Uh, I've, I've figured out a way that I could kind of, uh, excuse not naming this movie, uh, excuse, naming this movie because you know sometimes a movie can be embarrassing to say it's one of your one of your favorites mm-hmm. but if i can offer this caveat um and i think this is probably what everyone does it's like there's a difference between uh your favorite films and those films which you feel like are the best films ever made i agree i know a lot of people that don't a lot of people say that your favorite movies underneath you would say that these are the best movies of all time but i I would absolutely... Lawrence of Arabia is not in my top 10. Right. It's definitely one of the 10 best movies of all time. Right. In my opinion. Um, and again, it's still an opinion. The Seventh Seal, one of the greatest films ever made. Sure. But it's not in my top 10. It's probably not in my top 20 or 30. Because uh, in terms of favorites, It's in films, my top 100, I think, somewhere. It, well, it would definitely be in my top 100 favorites. Um, but the thing is, there, there's a lot of excuses almost that you feel like you need to give for your favorites mm-hmm. because your favorites might be some of the ones that I'm about to list yeah. and they might bear explanation for why in the world would that be in your top 10 favorite movies of all time? Because everything about the movie doesn't scream, everyone needs to see this. Well, the point is that a, a, a list of favorite films isn't your recommendation for everyone to see all these films. Right. They are movies that for any number of reasons touched you in a certain way at a certain time in your life or have grown into something because of m- multiple viewings um, that they, they've sort of grown with you, like that you yeah. understand more about them, even if it's kind of a silly movie on the surface. And they become important to you. And I, I think that there's probably about half of the movies on my list are, are movies that are like that. Yeah, I mean, my favorite movie of all time... I know what it is. ...is Nashville. yes. Replacing Citizen Kane, I would say Citizen Kane is a better film and one that is more essential. Mm-hmm. But I just and one that I would I would definitely say people need to see Citizen Kane. I don't know if I'd ever say people need to see Nashville, right. except for with with some caveats here and there. Like, mm-hmm. are you a Robert Altman fan? Do you like right. Do you like 
anti-establishment films. Do Great you like 70s films. Wonderful 70s films. Music. You know, do you like music? Do you enjoy me? Oh, wonderful original music. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of options there, but but as far as just as a human being, do you need to see Nashville? Now, part of me thinks, sure, why not? But I also know that the vast majority of people probably wouldn't like it. And maybe the vast majority wouldn't like Citizen Kane, but I feel like they have to... Everybody should have to muscle through what they don't like yeah. about Citizen Kane. Well, I know you've also had trouble in your life naming Citizen back when Citizen Kane was your favorite film. Yeah, was it just number two because it sounds like a movie that a film nerd would say is his favorite film. Yeah, as opposed to the greatest film. Right. Well, it sounds like a movie that a film nerd would say two decades ago before film nerds got particularly hip and decided they don't like Citizen Kane anymore. Right. Or they just, eh, it's pretty good. I don't see why the sound, sight and sound think it's so great. Ugh. I hate those people. But you know what? Once Vertigo knocked it out on the latest sight and sound polls, right. I was like, all right, uh, now I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. But then, of course, then I reassessed my uh-huh. top 10 and jumped to number So maybe well. everyone else was right, and it doesn't deserve Maybe it is the indeed, the, except there's, I can't think of more different films than Vertigo and Nashville. Um, That's true. Like, just so, so different. But, uh, but yeah. But Vertigo is an example of a movie that... So years ago, um, uh, there was a website that compi- sought out, I'm going to say, like, 60 or 70, maybe even more than that, uh, online film critics, including David and myself, um, and had us give our 10, ba- 10 favorite movies, sorry, 10 best movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, mine are, are very conventional, I, I think. Um, for the most part, you know, I've got Kane in there. I have Vertigo. I have 2001, even though I'm not a big fan of 2001. And I think Vertigo is my third favorite of Hitchcock's films. Um, but you can't deny that Vertigo exactly. is really doing something amazing and something maybe a little bit personal that maybe he wasn't doing in Psycho. And so, uh, I don't know. It's, we could, we could, Entire episodes of other podcasts, including mine, have been devoted to the I, the difference between favorite and best, and how somebody mm. goes about making a list. So, uh, so we don't have to go into too much of it here, partially because we've got ten movies to talk about. Right, but, but yes. I will say that I, I did. Um, the first thing I did was I just from the top of my head I listed all the movies I could think of that I love to watch over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, from those, I tossed out any that I, upon reflection, you can. I I, I was aware. I became aware of the fact that. That movie became a favorite, one that I would call my favorite, just because of a character mm-hmm. that was in it. Maybe an example of that might be something like um, Clouseau, a Clouseau film or a Pink oh, Panther okay. movie. It's like I could say, oh, it's one of my favorite comedies, the Pink Panther. But when I really think about the Pink Panther, I'm fast-forwarding through quite a bit of the movie or mm-hmm. movies uh, to get to those big comic set, set yeah. pieces. Or Ipcrest File, um, it's really just because I love watching Michael Caine. It's not that the story is great or that it's innovative in any way. Um, it's just a lot of fun. Um, or uh, favorite scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I in my mind, the first thing I go to is is the hospital. Um, I love that movie. It's a it's it is a, a very good movie. Um, it's also uh, I, it, it feels like it fails for me on some some levels, like coherent. It's a bit uneven. It is uneven because it it, it feels like it's about his his, his breakdown, mm-hmm. and there's some incredible, just sort of a uh, exhausting. Um, internal monologues that are happening uh, between him and who, whoever the girl is. And, and, but for me, there's... Diana Rigg? Diana Rigg, yes, well done. Um, and, but there's, there's like a scene in that movie that 
for some reason has allowed that movie to become like a movie that's oh, it's one of my favorite movies when it's not really the whole movie. It's really this one scene. It's a scene where uh, uh, Brubaker, the, one of his cohorts at the hospital, right. is explaining exactly why things are going downhill and exactly why this person in this in one of this, these rooms came in for like a, I don't know, a nail clipping or something and then ended up dead. Um, and it's just this this uh, this sort of trajectory of like, Oh, we ha- we were going to do this for him, and then this happened, and this person came in, and it was a mistake on the chart. Yeah. And that scene is so well written, and it's yeah. so satirical. And uh, watching George C. Scott's reaction to this entire thing, and he's just sort of like hand palm palm to face, just like yeah. this really happened. And then his diatribe on exactly where the medical establishment is in 1972 or yeah. one or whenever that came out. Um, that's why the movie became a favorite. So anyway, so I I, I peeled away all these movies that were just about the character or about a scene or about a bit of dialogue that I just like loved so much that it became my favorite movie. So those went away, um, kept the ones that I really felt like I could just stick in anytime and watch from beginning to end and or not care where I picked up on that movie and just keep watching to the end. And those became, so I mean, that still narrowed it down to quite a number, like maybe mm-hmm. 20. Um, so I had to go down from there, but I wish this, this could be top 20 because there are so many, but the truth is that the latest chapter in all of this effort was, uh, I told you the other day that I, I think that I just want to do top seven. Mm-hmm. I want to do top seven because it seemed like no matter what I did, there were seven movies that never went away from my top ten. And those last three slots, I just kept shuffling. It's like, oh, I could put this in, and then a day later, I'm like, uh, yeah, but what about this? Or, ah, I'm not so sure about that one anymore. Take it out and then put something else in. So, I thought, well, why not just top seven? You said, what did you say? Uh, what did I say? I said something like, uh, unacceptable or mm-hmm. something like that. You basically commanded me to make it 10. That's, that is true. And that was only yesterday, folks. Yeah. So, um, I'm still kind of unsure about these first oh, three I'm right. talking about. <laughs> you found yeah, it. You, yeah. Okay. So, I'm looking at the text. You said, uh, I'm thinking of making it a top seven. And then you go on and say things. And then I say, <laughs> 10. That's how people think. Yes, that's exactly right. And then I said, make the hard choices, jerk. Yes, and so I did. Because that's um, who I am. I'm a good friend. Uh, and, and finally, I guess it was uh, the, the final test was, are these movies that I, although I did do some mental prep work, you know, and like exactly why I like these movies, but what are movies that I could just talk about off the cuff or that mm-hmm. I have talked about off the cuff with people and I have enjoyed talking about many times? So... There are a couple up front, the, the like the eight, nine, and ten. Okay. Or ten, ten is okay, but nine and eight are like movies that are. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah. So, how do you want to handle this? We're gonna go from ten to one. All right. I'm gonna ask you some basic questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Quiz show. Uh, I want to spend maybe five to seven minutes on each film. We'll see how that works. We'll see how that works. I may need to keep us moving along. Sure. Uh, so, number ten. And this is one of those that I really feel like is, it's, it's a caveat movie for a top okay. 10. It is <clears throat> Star Trek II, okay. The Wrath of Khan. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, the re- so Directed what, by who? Directed by Nicholas Meyer. All right. When was it uh, released? In 1982. That's the year of my birth. Uh, ha- happy birthday. Um, wow. You were born the same year as this movie. Yeah. Um, I, I love this movie because, is, is that how I go into it? Just like sure. talk about why I love it. Of course, I mean, I saw it when I was a kid, and I had already been watching Star Trek episodes, and I love Star Trek episodes. And there was something about seeing them in a in a movie form. It's like they became larger 
Um, and yet they retained a lot of the fun that I enjoyed from the, the first episodes. Yeah. Um, they're just characters that I love. Um, and so seeing them in this larger than life uh, scenario just really drew me in and I loved it. That's not enough to put it in the top 10. Yeah, because uh, technically you got that in the first film, but no one would ever say that's their favorite Star Trek film. No one would ever say Star Trek Two is their favorite film. No, no, the Star, Star Trek, Tre- Star Trek, the motion picture. Oh, I see. Like, oh, I ever- didn't see it till years later. Yeah. As far as everybody's concerned, the Star Trek movie series started with Star, Star Trek, Trek Two. Two. Yeah. Um, no and one ever talks about. Some that would first say it. One. It ends also with Star Trek Two. Maybe Star Trek Six. Six is pretty amazing. Six is I really like good. That one a lot. Um, four is okay, of course. Three is Rocky. Five, Five is, is a train wreck. I tried watching it again maybe a year ago. And I watched it in, in, in like 10-minute installments on that because they were like, they may not still be streaming, but they were streaming on Netflix. And uh, <clears throat> I couldn't get past like 10 or 15 minutes at a stop because it's just so bad. It's just a, it's just a bad movie. Yeah. With a, actually, it has a quote that I still take with me, and I, I think I actually brought it up in my testimony episode okay. way back in the day when Kirk says, I need my pain. That's right. Because if you want to talk about the theme of the movie, the theme of the movie is it kind of holds up for me. Star Trek Five, I mean. Yeah. But start to, going back to Star Trek Two, have five to seven minutes. Oh my gosh. Right. Um, what I love about the movie now, or why it, it fits in my top ten, is because um, as I've grown older and I've just put the movie in because I enjoy it, I've recognized things about the movie that um, that I appreciate more than I did when I was a kid. I love the fact that this is a movie that willfully uh, uh, acknowledges age. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the the main not, not the main character one of the main characters Captain Kirk is aging and they make that part of his, his birthday. Um, uh, I actually have a paragraph. Do you mind if I just read this? Go right ahead. Um, let me find it. I, I, some of these I've I've written a little bit about, and I really like this. The movie works so perfectly insofar as its themes of death, rebirth, youth, old age, life from lifelessness, thanks to how fluidly and humorously those themes are set up in the first part of the movie. They may seem on the nose on paper, um, but the fact that it's Kirk's birthday, that he's given a pair of antique glasses, that he comes home to an empty apartment, that he's embroiled in a rescue of a machine that literally makes newness from death, um, that he's surrounded on his mission by a crew that's less than half his age, that he's visited by the loose canon result of his own mistakes. The movie is so single-minded in this rollout of themes in its first 15 minutes that the rest of the plot is infused and illuminated in ways that help it transcend mere adventure. And I, I just, that sort of encapsulates why I still love it today and why when I watch it, of course, it's a rousing adventure. Everyone is is like over the top in exactly the right kind of way yeah. for this kind of movie. It connects so wonderfully with the series, which I loved when I was a little kid and still do um, because it's, it, you know, it's a sequel of a TV episode. Has there ever been anything like that before? Not that I can recall. Yeah. It's just a, a strange anomaly in the history of sequels, um, sequel of a movie and sequel of an episode of itself. So um, I, I don't know. All of these things just kind of feed into to my love for it. It's a great adventure story. It's characters that I grew up loving and it's aged with me, and it's a movie that allows me to reflect on my own aging, yeah. Um, in a way that is, um, let, let's say that's the medicine, and the capsule around the medicine is the fact that it's still a Star Trek movie, and it's so well crafted as an adventure story. 
And that's a the pirate thing. story. It's basically, it's a pirate story. And that's the thing about Star Trek versus something like Star Wars. Is Star Trek always had a foot firmly planted on, in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And science fiction, while frequently cold, uh, mm-hmm. emotionally cold, the best science fiction will explore very human themes yes. and ideas. And the idea of using, you know, the second in the film series to explore, like you were talking about, aging and regret and these things couched in, you know, a Star Trek adventure, but also couched in science fiction, I feel like is is why, and having a really good villain, which we'll get to in a moment, but um, that is why people remember that one as, I would say quite possibly, but I think most assuredly the best Star Trek film. It is, as far as most people are concerned, it's the only Star Trek film. Hmm. Um, I think Six definitely has its uh, pleasures. Um, I think the new movies can be a fair amount of fun, although the I saw a trailer for the for Star Trek Beyond. It looks horrible. Really? I disagree. I, I watched it, and I, I'm not going to say that I think it's going to be a great film. I don't think mm. the first two are great films. They were fun films. They don't feel like Star Trek films, purely speaking. Right. Um, but the movie, the trailer felt to me kind of like it was trying to hook into some of the fun of this brand of Star Trek, where it's... It's a serious villain who's set to destroy them and wipe them out of the universe, um, but but it's still kind of fun. It might just be the trailer that I don't like because mm. they do tend to they're trying to focus on the levity and mm. the silliness. Like so many lines are like laugh lines. Mm. Um, also, they have they're playing Beastie Boys music during it, which seems strange to me. That is strange. But at the same time, it, it it's might strange be and good. it works. I, I liked the the first two new mm-hmm. films. Um, but yeah, uh, what, out of curiosity, before we get back to Wrath of Khan, what is your opinion of the, uh, the next gen films? Uh, the next generation never, I never connected with it on TV. Hmm. And so, uh, I would say if I had to have a favorite of those, it would actually be the one that of course has Kirk in it. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, but no, I, I've seen, I haven't even seen all of the next generation films. I've seen maybe the first three Weren't there like five of them or something? I think just... there were four. There was Generations, First Contact. I can't tell you any of those plots. I don't First know Contact one from the other. with the Borg. Okay. And then there's Insurrection and Nemesis. There might be another one, but I think it's hmm. those four. I've only seen the first two. I remember liking First Contact quite a bit, but I was a kid and I was probably inclined to like it. Sure. Um, but yeah, so Wrath of Khan, uh, what are some of your... So you're talking about thematically the stuff that really resonates with you, but how often is it that a movie that you, that you're inclined to love a movie based not solely but primarily on theme? How often does that happen, or does it have to be? Does the artistic quality have to be there as well? I I, de- I definitely think a the artistic quality has to be there for me to get drawn into it. Right. I'll say the theme is going to be spelled out in the first ten minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a very good question because I've been thinking about this and in looking at my top ten. How many of these movies are well shot or well crafted movies as yeah. well? I was like, wow, I'm really drawn to this kind of movie. It seems, um, and I think that's because, and I, I I haven't coalesced this into like a paragraph, but it feels like I, I also come from as we talked about in my very first episode um, way back in the day. My my history with movies kind of is aligned also with my history with comic strips. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a comic strip person. I mean, Charles Schultz was one of my first heroes when I was a little kid. And there's something about being able to balance 
uh, a composition in a frame that really draws me into a movie. Um, Coen Brothers do that. Yeah. Um, a, a guy that I've been watching a ton of recently because we just got Hulu Plus, and so I have all these Criterion movies uh, at my fingertips. I've been watching a lot of uh, Ozu movies, oh, yeah. Japanese filmmaker from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and watching his, it's like the extreme because he basically has one shot that he uses for almost every single film, every yeah. single scene. But everything in that shot is always so perfectly composed that I'm continually, like that my interest in the film is continually renewed every time it cuts to a new shot or new angle of that same scene. Um, and I think it's because I love composing things. I love drawing things and composing them. When I, when I was in film school, I loved it anytime someone said, hey, can you run camera? Because I loved, even if it wasn't my own film, it was like I loved setting up shots, hmm. composing pictures. Um, and so I think I responded to that. So yeah, definitely, I mean, if that, obviously there's more to art of film than yeah. just uh, the composition of the shot. There's editing and the music and all that stuff as well. But I'm definitely drawn into a movie if it is, if I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in the hands of someone who can make it look nice. And it sounds really kind of like low rent, like, oh, I, I like a movie, it looks good. Uh, it's not just that, but... Well, and that's the, that's the thing, is I think if you were to talk to most people, uh, like most film people, if, the, you know, they talk about their top 10, I feel like almost invariably it will be a marriage of themes they respond to pulled off very well. If you were to look at their general top 100 or something like that, if people make them, not everybody does. In fact, most people don't. Um, but if you look at, at people's top 100, that's where you might find movies that are artistically fine but really delve into a theme somebody likes. Or mm -hmm. a movie that doesn't really delve into a theme they like but it's really artistically amazing. Um, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a movie that I love. Uh, it's one of the best made films of all time. Thematically, there's not much there sure. for me, uh, but it's still one of my favorites, but it would never crack my top 10. Whereas probably all movies, all the movies in my top 10 really dig into something that I respond to, mm -hmm. but do so in a way that has a, a great deal of craftsmanship to it. And Yeah, and a movie that keeps uh, wanting me to talk about it is uh, a movie that didn't make my top 10, but that I dearly love. It's Tender Mercies. Mm -hmm. And um, two, two things that really make that a favorite one of them is not the art of the film. Um, one of them is, of course, Duvall's performance, which yeah. is impeccable. Um, and the second is the theme. And the theme, there's multiple themes in that movie. Uh, one of the themes is um, retreating from that which you love in order to protect yourself from more pain. Yeah. And uh, that meets itself out all the way through the scene where he's singing at the bar. Yeah. And he overcomes that fear or that resistance or that recoiling. Um, and I love that movie because of that and because the way almost everything about every moment in that movie is him quietly recoiling from that yeah. which he actually loves. Um, and then, of course, Duval sells it every sure. single moment of the movie. Um, I like to think of that movie, just sidebar, um, as one of the fastest slow movies slow movies that I can think of. Yeah. If you watch the movie, the way it's edited, it's very fast. It's, it goes along at such a fast clip. It's like this shot, uh, scene, 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 scene. Scenes are like a minute long, minute and a half long. But your memory of the movie is slow, yeah. thoughtful, laconic, quiet. And I don't know another movie that does that. Uh, I can think of one that is actually on your top 10 that I think of as a very quiet movie that moves very quickly. Hmm. Um, but we'll, we'll... We'll talk about that. We'll get that. It's actually get a good segue to move on, maybe. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, it's I. It's I could talk about Star Trek two more. Uh, let's give it two more minutes. Okay. So, um, so is there, is there something about, let's, let's do this. Is there something about the character of Khan? Because as I'm, as I talk about my favorite Star Trek movies, which is two and six, you've got Ricardo Montalban and -hmm. the character of Khan, but you also have Christopher Plummer in number six. You have great villains, like people, like characters that the, that, Kirk and everybody else can really push up against. Is there something about Khan specifically yeah. that you respond to? Uh, I respond well. He's like a living cartoon, sure, and he's over the top. Everything he he says, he's he's seething mm-hmm. and breathing, just like seething out of his teeth. It's like, and I I look back at the last time I watched the movie, then I went back, or actually watched the uh, the original episode as well, mm-hmm. and this same characterization, obviously not as much money. And it's the '60s, so everything about it is the '60s. But um, but his performance inside the television box, the four-three television box, is it's almost to me unwatchable hmm. because it's almost like he doesn't know how to modulate how over the top he should be. I don't know if he'd never done TV before. I know he'd done movies before then, but not, I don't know if maybe he didn't know how to bring it, rein it in, or what, whatever. Yeah. But but there's especially there's a scene where he's like trying to break out of the the room that they put him in on the Enterprise. And uh, he, he he kind of, he does a running start to it, not literally, but he's like standing before it, he's like going to gather the power to rip the door off mm-hmm. so he can walk through it. And uh, and the performance that he gives in that moment is quite frankly unwatchable, it's just so, because it's so big. So that same performance translated onto a movie screen or, you know, the, the bigger budget of a feature film works so perfectly. And especially given, this is what I love, is that, uh, uh, William Shatner is made fun of his entire career for, for being a ham. Yeah, and here you've got two huge hams. It's like you, you need a con as a villain to be the counterpoint to the hamminess that is William Shatner That's or true. Captain Kirk. And it actually Khan's performance, which is fun to watch, is fun, so fun to watch, and it's so broad, and he's just so filled with hate, and you you love the fact that he just sticks to his hate. Yeah, all the way to the very end of his life, um, it actually all of that over the topness makes Kirk seem more level headed. Yeah, even though he's not being level headed either. I mean, obviously the the thing that most people go to the moment that most people go to in their mind immediately is when he shouts "Con" when he's yeah. like trapped in the middle of the planet and he just yells "Con" into his little intercon intercom um, or intercon. Sure. Um, He's tapping into his inner con, being really big as he screams into his inner com. There you go. He had to communicate the only way that con knew how to, anyway. Yeah. Which is at 11. 11. So, I love all of that. I love the fact that he's a, he's a sort of, uh, he's, he's Kirk's match. Yeah. In the hammy department. Ham department. That's true. Um, but beyond that, I think it's just written well. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they, they made the sequel to this, scenario from this old episode um and then blew it up to to feature feature film size it still fits it's like oh my gosh what did kirk do representing the federation he he threw a guy and all of his followers onto a planet to just like fend for themselves of course they're the smartest guys in this new planet now so they Mm -hmm. can kind of do whatever they want to didn't know that the what the axis was going to shift and then the whole planet was now a desolate wasteland didn't know that was going to happen, but even so, even with even if you could predict that, you still defied, I believe, Federation law yeah. by never checking up on them. You basically left them to die. Yeah. And 
if you want to talk about themes, and I, I think I mentioned in the paragraph, it's like all of us have these things that we kind of wish we didn't do or people that we hurt that we wish we could go back in time and change or say something better to or more meaningful to or at all. And uh, Kirk is that in this movie for, or uh, Khan is that for Kirk in this movie. The moment when Khan's face first appears on the big screen on the Enterprise, and there's that wonderful shot of Kirk rising into frame yeah. in a close-up, and that look on his face, the look in his eye is like, you can see the entire episode yeah. <laughs> uh, Botany of uh, Botany Bay, whatever it was called, that episode, um, uh, play in his mind. It's like, oh my gosh, that's right. Oh my gosh, that's right. I left that guy to die, and here he is, and now I've got to pay the price. It's like, yeah. your worst nightmare is for your worst mistake to come back, surprise, you've got to deal with me now. Yeah. I, I just love that. And it results in the death of a friend, mm-hmm. you know, and Absolutely. that scene is very powerful. And again, I don't think of Star Trek as a particularly emotional show or world, mm-hmm. uh, but in that moment, it's very emotional. And and it's such an interesting idea to have to have Spock die. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that is the closest relationship uh, on the on the show and in that yeah. world. But um, but yeah, it's uh, no. I never feel nerdier, honestly, than when I'm watching Star Trek Two. And of course, I watch it from beginning to end. Yeah. Because I love it so much. Um, when we're at the moment moment of greatest peril, the ship is going to explode if something doesn't happen, or it's going to get shot out of the sky. And there's that moment, it cuts to, to Spock, and he's sitting in his chair like he should, and uh, doing his job, and he kind of pivots the chair, and he's looking at the floor. Every time, I think, don't do it. Yeah. And I get emotional, I'm like, he's, he's going to do it. Maybe this time he won't. <laughs> Maybe this time he won't die. Yeah. And it's ridiculous, but at the same time, I'm like, he's about, it's like his, his, his salvation plan for this entire crew has become three-dimensional in his head when he's looking at the floor then. He stands up. And then the the counter shot to that is later when Kirk turns and sees the empty chair. Yeah, he's like, now I know what happened. I know how we're, why we were rescued. Why why we're okay now. Yeah, runs down there, and that moment is just so emotional for any Star Trek fan or for any nerd. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, it just works every single time. Yeah, I, the great movies are the ones that uh, I think make you forget that you've seen them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime I watch Jaws, I always feel like. <sighs> Maybe this is the time Quint gets out. Maybe this yeah. is the time he wins. Yeah. Uh, it's never happened. Oh, my gosh. You know. Um, my heart, again my heart is always beating at the end of, of that sequence. When he is, uh, obviously, spoilers, yeah. getting chomped by the shark, and that peal of terror and, and pain yeah. when he's getting pulled down is yeah. so real. And he's built a character as an actor that is so... You don't want to meet this guy, but you like him. Yeah. And he's doing a good thing being that guy for these two other guys. Yeah. He's making them understand things about them that they didn't know before just by being out there. And then he's getting chomped, and that that scream is so real, and yeah. Shaw is so great in that moment. It's like you just kind of re- want to rewind it. I mean, it's it's a perfect ending for that character. You don't want it to happen, though. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Um, okay, we will move on to number nine. Number nine is is one I don't exactly know how to handle. It's like this and number eight are two movies that I I'm I added last night. Okay, from a, a big a broader list, and I love it. And I also don't know how to talk about it because I have to talk about the end. And it's a movie that you might not you know people listening might not have seen. I don't want to spoil it. Okay. 
So I think that maybe I can just kind of breeze over it by saying it's a favorite movie because um, it's a movie that I've only kind of started to love recently. I I've, I've saw it maybe four or five years ago for the first time, and it, I liked it. Mm-hmm. It's a Jimmy Stewart movie. Uh, he plays a bounty hunter. Uh, it is called... I'm sorry. I never said the name. It's called The Naked Spur, which is a bizarre title. Directed by? Directed by Anthony Mann, okay. who directed Jimmy Stewart in five classic westerns uh, in the very early 50s. Um or in the early 50s. And these are, are dark dark westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of known for this because Anthony Mann directed the guy who you, you, you know from Harvey or you know from It's a Wonderful Life or uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And these are you know these are roles that have their dark sides and movies that have their dark moments. But you don't really see darkness. Like the movie itself isn't dark. And the character doesn't come from a, a, a dark place necessarily right. goes to a dark place maybe at moments in these other movies um certainly not harvey harvey he's like yeah he's gonna be fine aside from the fact that he's probably an alcoholic he's oh yeah okay. i have a lot of problems with that movie it's not a comedy yeah movie. i was i was in that play uh in high school who did you play dr chumley okay well is he the one that like ends up he's the only other person that sees harvey oh i see gotcha perfect so nice um I'd love to talk about Harvey, but we should probably move on. Indeed. Because I disagree with everyone that says it's a comedy. Anyway, we'll move on. Um, no, but The Naked Spur is one of these five directed by Anthony Mann. It's a dark Western where uh, Stewart plays a bounty hunter who is has taken on this job because he basically lost his home, or he realized it after he came back from the Civil War, that his wife had run off with another man and he lost his his land. So now he's going to buy his land back by being a bounty hunter. And Robert Ryan plays this rascal, this outlaw, mm-hmm. this bad guy. Um, Robert Ryan, by the way, just for the record, is probably my top three or four favorite character actors. He's just mm. he's an incredibly he's pretty great, good, great actor to watch. Be bad. Um, even when he's playing a good guy, he's still kind of bad just because of the way he looks. Like in the Wild Bunch. Like in the Wild Bunch. Yeah, he's yeah. the last guy you see, yeah. and uh, oh, one of the last guys you see. But yeah, he's he's just great in everything he does. But in this movie, he plays the guy that that uh, that Stewart is after. No spoilers here. He captures um, Robert Ryan toward the beginning of the movie. The rest of the movie is Robert Ryan trying to get away uh, by his devious plots yeah. um, to get away from him. The movie takes a, an emotional turn uh, closer to the end when things are revealed about Stewart's character uh, vis-a-vis the woman in in the story, which is Janet Lee plays. Robert Ryan's girlfriend, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't know if they called them girlfriends back in 1880 uh, or 1870. It would be weird to hear John Wayne say, this is my girlfriend. It's right. Just, it's such an odd My term. gal pal? I don't know <laughs> what you would call them. My best gal? Yeah. Um, my woman, probably. Uh, so, it, it another you know non-spoiler, she becomes sort of Stuart's love interest. And by the end of the movie, there's just this really emotional moment that when I watched it with my wife recently, I kind of realized, again, in a three-dimensional way, where before it was almost a two-dimensional love that I had for the movie, that this movie represented exactly how I felt about, uh, or it sort of represented my confusion. I think that probably a lot of guys feel for why a woman would love them at all. Mm-hmm. Because of all the terrible things that you regret or the things that – lifestyles or choices that you've made in the past that you're like, why was I even doing that or why was I thinking that way? Um, and yet I've told this woman this and she still loves me? Yeah. And she still wants to, what, marry me? <laughs> yeah. And spend the rest of her life with me? 
Um, and there's the, you know, that's a, a an element of this movie toward the end that when I was watching it with Aubrey, I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I feel about you. I don't know why you love me still after yeah. knowing all these things. And I, I'll admit it here. I started bawling on the couch next to my wife watching The Naked Spur made in 1950, whatever, starring Jimmy Stewart. You know why? Yeah. But it's a, it's, it's probably for like three or four years, it's been one of my favorite movies as I define favorite movies, just sort of amorphous mass of movies that I love and going back, I love going back to and can watch from any point to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I put it here in the top 10 because just since that moment, probably about two or three months ago when I watched it with Aubrey, yeah. it's like, wow, it's a, it's just really it, meaningful. It's become a meaningful movie to me. Yeah, that that is something that will happen. Um, you know, as you get older and you have more life experience or different types of life experience, I have no doubt that when the time comes and my wife and I are, are parents, I will start to view different, you know, movies in general differently, but also movies about parenthood mm-hmm. uh, a little differently. Um, you know, that's in making my my own top 100 and I've said it before is Nashville showed up at number 30 <laughs> years ago and then every two or three years I would make a top 100 and without realizing that this is what was happening Nashville was moving up and up and up and it was at number 4 in 2011 or 12 and then when I made my list again there it is at number one. So you can just see as I get older mm-hmm. and I have, and I experience more, more of life and I meet different types of people. Suddenly there Nashville, which delves into humanity uh, mm-hmm. and the different types of people you'll, you'll meet and the different types of relationships you'll have. It started getting bigger and bigger and, or, or higher and higher. And then finally it replaced citizen Kane. Wow. So in that same way, it sounds like, you know, when was the last time you'd seen Naked Spur? I suspect it had been within a year okay. of a couple of months ago. So okay. um, I, I only found the movie maybe six or seven years ago, and I'd probably seen it maybe five or six times since then. Oh, wow. Um, and you, you may wonder, like, well, you only had that three-dimensional epiphany, like, a couple of months ago. Why were you watching it over and over again? Well, the reason is because it's just a, a supremely supremely crafted Western Mm-hmm. I love Westerns. Um, I love the spareness of the genre, and you could fit yeah. almost any theme you want onto that yeah. spare, you know, scenario. And <clears throat> the good ones do that, and they're also very entertaining. This one's very entertaining because you love watching Robert Ryan trying to worm out of this yeah. scenario. You, you, you perversely enjoy watching um, Jimmy Stewart kind of squirm under what is clearly a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, from his life, from his being abandoned or forsaken by his true love. Um, but yeah, so I, I love Westerns. And Anthony Mann, I haven't seen a whole lot of his movies outside of the Western genre, um, but he handles Westerns. All, all five of these Westerns with Jimmy Stewart are, are just so wonderfully crafted. It's like John Ford, you know, does, mm-hmm. he makes the environment live, makes it, I hate to use this phrase, but makes the environment the character a character in the movie yeah um uh howard hawks does that as well and the several that he does that he's done um and anthony mann and bud bedeker i don't know if you've heard that name but bud bedeker did name sounds familiar um a bunch of like really cheap i don't want to say cheap they were inexpensive western in the late 50s that were also 
dark moral tales with Randolph Scott, hmm. who, like Jimmy Stewart, was seen as kind of the white hat guy, white hat cowboy that always did the right thing. Well, he does the right thing, but they're always kind of, you know, they're kind of questionable reasons, or he becomes a questionable character as the the white hat becomes a little muddied right. um, throughout the film. But um, but Anthony Mann just makes the uh, the environment, the landscape breathe it's just like it's you love watching these characters in these environments because the environment itself is like beautifully forsaken hmm. it's empty um i don't know what else to say except that's, that I, I just love love that movie and all of his westerns that's fine and we can move on and, and that's one of the reasons i was excited uh, for you to talk about this film is mm-hmm. i haven't seen it and i'm sure a number of the listeners haven't seen it and so mm-hmm. if you're a fan of westerns if you're a fan of Jimmy Stewart, Robert Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, themes of love and regret and pain redemption. and that sort of thing and redemption. Absolutely. This redemption. is the movie for you. Yeah. Uh, I recommend it highly. So we will move on to number eight. Number eight is uh, the, the latest movie that I've added to any sort of list like this because I've seen it the most recently. And there's something, it's called uh, a, another bizarre title, mm-hmm. Only Angels Have Wings. That's not true at all. Bats have wings. Birds. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I don't. It's it's a corny title for a movie that is not corny. It's a uh, it's a it movie has a ma- Douglas Sirk quality that uh, that kind of title. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, it's kind of a uh, operatic almost. Yeah. Uh, and the movie is not operatic. It's uh, it's almost like a play actually. The more I think about it, because it's it takes place in a uh, it's made nineteen thirty nine, directed by Howard Hawks, and starring Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. Hmm. Um, those are the the main love interest. And it's set in, talk about your spare sort of scenarios, it's, uh, it's set in a uh, mail delivery service, M-A-I-L, okay. delivery service in the Andes uh, in South America. And these guys are just uh, basically just like a little village unto itself of these men whose job it is, is to get in a plane, uh, fly over this high, extremely dangerous pass into the other areas, like from this village, um, into like bigger cities or to the United States or whatever to drop off mail for the next stop mm-hmm. for them to take the mail. So it's all about mail. It's just about getting the mail to where it belongs. Yeah. And you know, men die. You know, in this in, in this uh, movie that you that you like. Um, uh, it, it's I, I meant to preface it also by saying it's it's the movie because it's the latest to be loved by me in the list. I also don't really know how to talk about it because it's like I don't quite know exactly what it is that I love about it. Yeah. Specifically, I mean, I, I love watching it in any moment, especially from the be- well, from the beginning of the movie. I love watching it. You, Howard Hawks is one of my favorite directors, and a lot of his movies are like this, where it's about uh, uh, men uh, who are in a kind of a rarefied place, uh, whether it's a western in a, in a, a saloon or or if it's uh, uh, His Girl Friday, where it's a bunch of guys mm-hmm. in a newsroom, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. Um, and uh, almost all of these movies are just, uh, kind of like that, all of his movies, but this one, um, I, the more I think, thought about it since I put it on this list, I've thought it must be because, um, I'm kind of a morbid guy underneath it all. And I think about death, not in a, I guess it's not overly morbid kind of way, but I'm, I'm fascinated by other people's thoughts on death or how they meet that out in their art. And that's why I love Woody Allen so much. We talked about Woody Allen for two and a half hours one day, remember? Yeah. And uh, and I just I, I love seeing how that's meted out. And and in this movie, there's such a cavalier attitude among these men regarding death. It's a fatalistic attitude. It's like these guys know 
have chosen to be there. They've chosen to do this for a living in this specific spot on the planet where they could die. They're, they're joking with each other all the time. They're singing songs at the piano together. When Jean Arthur shows up, they're like, they're all vying for her attention together. And they're all having kind of a good old time. Meanwhile, every now and then, they've got to deliver the, one of them has to deliver the mail. And then it gets super tense. And life, life is on the line. So, for those few minutes, it becomes obvious that these men actually do take death seriously. But when, at the beginning of the movie, toward the beginning of the movie, one of the guys misses the landing because the fog comes in at the last minute and he can't see the runway. One, like four minutes later in the movie, four minutes almost in real time, they're back at the piano singing a song. And uh, Cary Grant is eating the guy's steak that he had ordered before he left for this mission. Yeah. And Gene Arthur, who is sort of the everyman, if you will, in this movie, sort of our, you know, she's like the surrogate for us in the movie, like, how can they be this way? How can they treat death so cavalier? Um, she's like, how dare you? This man, this is this man's stake. How can you do this? And she says, what about Joe? And they go, who's Joe? And that's sort of like the, the, the repeated line for the next 20 minutes or so, who's Joe? And she sort of learns over the course of the first half of the movie, like, okay, I get it. These guys have to deal with death this way because it's always there. Yeah, It's always a possibility. And if they worry about it all the time, then they will be basket cases. Yeah. And they love each other in in a way that men in war would love each other or any other scenario that you might conceive that's kind of like that where life is always on the line. Yeah. And I don't know, I, that's the best I can do in terms of why it's here, but I I always watch anytime I see it on the shelf I'm like, "Oh, I want to watch that again." And when I do put it in, I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is just it just feels so good when I'm watching it." That sounds that sounds really great, and uh, yeah, and I I think the first I have heard of it is this, so hmm. uh, I'm very excited to watch it myself. And listener, I hope you are as well. But we do need to move on. We'll now move on to number oh, seven. Shoot, number seven. Where am I? Uh, oh my gosh, number seven. I love this movie. <laughs> um, my my seventh favorite movie, according to this list, is King Kong. Okay, 1933. Yes, I was going to say that. Um, there have been other iterations of this movie quite obviously, and uh, I've watched them all and uh, enjoy them all because, again, going back to that first episode I was on, and we talked about how basically my, my first 10 years of life was all about monster movies and, and old, like, 50s science fiction movies, and yeah. it took me until I was about 9 or 10 to realize that there were other kinds of movies between, b- besides that kind of movie and maybe comedies starring Abbott and Costello. Um, which, that, in which they occasionally encountered monsters. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, meet Frankenstein, meet the mummy. Um, but I, um, this, uh, funny because back to back, Only Angels Have Wings is, the, is the, the latest movie to enter this sort of rarefied space of like, I love this movie so much, I'll put it at the top of my list. Yeah. Um, this is the oldest movie, maybe even in terms of like how old it actually is. Um, but it's the first movie that I can remember dying to see again any time that I saw that it was playing on TV. Um, I would build my week around seeing it because we, had, you know, we had cable when I was a kid, of course. And if I saw that it was on, I would, I was, just, I was a little kid, and I was just like, I, I can't wait to see it again. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I need to describe what the movie's about. I mean, it's about. Yeah, I feel like most people. Uh, yeah, know what it is. For movies like this, I don't think we need to delve into plot. We can just talk about the stuff that you react to. Uh, what I react to still, uh, and why it's placed on a list like this for me still is. 
because it's beloved by me. I don't. I honestly don't know how to expound on it beyond. Um, it sort of was the birthplace of a lot of passions for me. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I got into reading about stop motion photography. Yeah. When I was a kid, and so I learned names like Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. Um, and Jim Danforth and all these guys before, before I knew who you know Thomas Jefferson was. And, or, you know, it just seems a little backwards, but I, I just, I, I got into special effects and movies and loving that the behind the scenes and knowing all about that kind of stuff because of King Kong. And I can still watch the movie. Now, I will admit that um, if I ever put the movie in, I'll, I'll tend to fast forward through the first like 20, 25 minutes of it. I'll kind of catch bits and pieces of it, but it, it is 1933 and it's, uh, it's directed by Marion C. Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very much of its time as all these movies are, frankly. But that time happened to be a time when they were still kind of beholden to uh, the fact that sound cameras were were new or yeah. recording sound was new. And so it's like, where do you place the the sound and the camera and the actors to where you can get it all? And it it was stagey. It's very stagey um, and blocky. And the acting style is broad in yeah. a way that's kind of you know you want to recoil from it a little bit now. <clears throat> but the uh, the movie itself, once King Kong shows up, and once I'm watching the the fantasy of it and the adventure of it kind of open up as it opens up for the characters and as they're reacting to it, I'm back into it. I'm, I'm a little kid again watching that movie. It's just so um, gratifying to see that that style yeah. m- done so well. And I don't I don't I mean certainly the the practice of stop motion photography got better. You know, as film stock got better, as the techniques got better, as Ray Harryhausen came along and learned how to breathe life into the movements better. Yeah. But there's something about watching King Kong. It's so elemental um, with regard to that that brand of special effects that it, it lives. It's just, it's alive to me. And, um, you know, I guess a lot of kids today might look at it, I don't really know, and look at it and go, oh, I don't understand. Why is it so herky-jerky? And, and I really don't know how a kid would react to it. But I watch it. Of course, it was well beyond you know, stop motion films being made when I saw it yeah. for the first time. So, and I reacted to it the way I did. So I don't, I don't really know. Maybe kids would love it. I, it's, it's hard to say, like, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that you and I are different than your average moviegoer. Hmm. Um, and that maybe that extends to us as children as well. Um, I know people to go back to Jaws. I know people that have a problem with the shark in Jaws saying it looks fake. And I was like, what do I care? Robert Shaw's screaming and blood is coming out of his yeah. mouth. I don't care if it looks fake or not. It feel it feels real. Yep. And when I watch King Kong and I saw that at a fairly young age as well, but you know, young for me, I mean, I was, I'm definitely, I'm getting older, but 82. So like, what are special effects around the time that I would have seen King Kong. We're talking Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. the Indiana Jones movies, Terminator. Terminator 2 came out when I was nine. So I probably saw King Kong around that time, and I had no problem with yeah. the special effects. I did acknowledge that, yeah, it's an older film, and I was willing and able to cut it that kind of yeah. slack, whereas I feel like maybe most young people would be like, oh, First off, it's in black and white. Yeah. And second, look at this dumb puppet. But to me, it doesn't even seem like a puppet. That's the other thing. That is the biggest achievement. Not merely that this thing moves in a somewhat fluid way and that it has a personality. I buy the scale of it, mm-hmm. and I buy Kong's relationship to uh, Anne. 
Yep. I think Fay Ray's character. Um, it feels it all feels real to me. And then when Kong dies, I'm sad. Absolutely, I'm actually sad. Yeah, you know, and I feel like you know to feel sad for it's one thing. It Boris Karloff in makeup is one thing. That's still a living, breathing person mm-hmm. imbuing the character or something. This is a performance from an inanimate object that makes me literally care about it to the point that when it dies, I feel I have an emotional response right. to it. Well, we hear Andy Serkis, you know, yeah. to talk about his art, you know, in the art of acting with yeah. motion capture stickers all over him. Um, and we watch the performance in the final film and we go, oh my gosh, what a, what a miracle yeah. that, that, a CGI object in front of me uh, is imbued with so much life. It's because Andy Serkis has given it life by being a good actor behind yeah. the scenes. It's the same exact way with Willis O'Brien animating King Kong. You don't see Willis O'Brien on screen yeah. with a CGI covering. Um, but you do see that Willis O'Brien, in whatever way you want to describe is a good actor yeah because the movements he's doing piecemeal just like one tiny movement 24 times to make one second of film yeah you know he's doing that in a way i don't know how you do that where it's not just herky-jerky moment motion but you're actually imbuing it with a personality you watch king kong in that movie and the way he swipes at something or when he uh in that first awesome scene where he he's battling the tyrannosaurus rex yeah and at the end of the of the fight, when of course he's defeated the Tyrannosaurus Rex, um, he looks down at the dead dinosaur. He's kind of turning his head almost like a dog to a sound. Yeah. He's looking at it and he grabs the jaw that he's just broken. Yeah. And he he plays with it. He's like kind of slapping at it and kind of moving it. Yeah. And kind of looking at it like he's almost like he's for the first time observing death. Like yeah. What have I done? I've I've kind of I killed this thing. Now it's dead. And then, of course, his attention is turned back to Anne, who's trying to get away. Um, and he forgets the dinosaur, so he's not, you know. It's, it's very, that's... But it's all fun to watch Kong because... is very animalistic, but mm-hmm. still with emotions and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that carries through all the way to the scene when he's on top of the Empire State Building. Yeah. And he's being, you know, bulleted to death. Yeah. And the way he moves when he's being shot, and the way he kind of looks down at her... And the way he just sort of droops when he finally gives up and, and falls to his death, you are sad because, much like I said earlier about whoever it was in, that, in the first movie, um, he's, he's built a character. Yeah. Oh, it was, we're talking about Shaw and Jaws. He's built a character that you love. Willis O'Brien has built a character that you love yeah. and hate to see die. And the art involved in that is just that. It's an art. It's a talent. It's a gift. I own the 33 and 2005 King's Kong. Um, and Thank you, William Sapphire. And it's, and it's weird. I, I acknowledge that, and, and I, the 33 is a, is a better film. I still like the 2005. A lot of people don't. I still respond to the world building of Peter Jackson and the, and the way he pulls off not merely... New York in the 1930s, but also, you know, the island as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the boat journey. I, I like that that whole movie. But I rarely watch either one because I need to be in the mood to watch a sad movie. Oh, like, yeah. I approach it like yeah. like a kitchen sink drama, or not really, but I approach it like, all right, I, I need to be in the mood to be depressed if I'm going to watch King Kong. It's basically boy meets girl. Yeah. Girl loses boy. Yeah. And it's such a... Because by the end, she loves him, too, in, yeah. in, in the way that you're supposed to love a giant ape. 
which is what which the, I'm sure we can all relate to. Sure. Um, I was going to say that you know you know like if you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm sorry, this feels like a shotgun. That's fine. But um, you watch it, and there's something about the quality of the film production itself that makes it scarier. Yeah. It's like oh, it feels like found footage almost. Yeah. Or a lot of '70s movies are that way. It feels almost more real. I'm talking about like legit like dramas. Yeah, there's a raw. It's a raw, not slick at all. No, and even when it's trying to be slick, it's not. Um, but especially horror movies. A horror movie from the '60s, it's like super low budget, and you watch it now, it might be corny in a lot of ways. The acting style is off. The blood is obviously fake, but there's still something scary about it because the way it looks. To me, the same principle applies to King Kong, the original King Kong, because. Once we get to that island, and you see kind of the mist, mm-hmm. and then you see the, the dinosaurs that are clearly brought to life by stop motion, which yeah. is the same process that brings us the joy of Rudolph's shiny new year, Yeah, you know, but set in that movie, that black and white, badly acted, otherwise, badly acted movie, he's the best actor in the movie, um, movie in the mist, and the dinosaurs, and in the, in the jungle, you feel like you're in a different place. You feel like you're in a place where where creatures might actually move that way. It feels like a fantasy. Yeah. And the fact that it was made in 1933 helps that. The fact that the you know the black and white film that you might be or the DVD that you see might still be had the scratched up print. You know that's where they struck it from, and and the the mist and the kind of pops from like shot to shot. You know if there's broken film, all of that kind of stuff yeah. kind of feeds into the feeling that it's almost like it's found yeah. or that it's that it's been around so long that maybe this was even before film. It's just like they, th- there's an, an, a quality to the fact that it's old that makes it more believable. Yeah, I remember I read an, uh, a review of the original Night of the Living Dead that talked about the grainy film stock making everything feel as old as death itself. <laughs> and that somehow it just, that style of acting or that style of, of filmmaking and maybe not having a great deal of money or just having limited resources can actually play into things. If the if all the actors in the original King Kong were giving very subtle, nuanced performances, then suddenly this giant clay ape would just stick out like a sore thumb. But yeah. it all it all feels like it's when when the performances are this uh, histrionic at times, mm-hmm. it feels like a world where a giant ape would exist. Yeah, um, yeah. The the movies, uh, the Harryhausen movies that uh, that work the best are the ones I feel like that are set in a place where where it might be believable that an animal or a creature might behave this way, like in one of the Sinbad movies that he's yeah. done, or Clash of the Titans, as opposed to something like, although I love all these movies, something like um, uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, mm-hmm. where he ends up like stomping down Fifth Avenue in New York City, like King Kong. Yeah. Um, and he's in a real, real world setting, um, from almost from the beginning of the movie, all the way through. And so it's it's... You have to suspend more disbelief to see this kind of creature in, in and amongst, you know, 50s cars and modern yeah. buildings and all this kind of stuff. Whereas in King Kong, you have a good 45 minutes or so on the island in the original, I guess, um, where where you're on that island and you're in that fantasy world. So that by the time he gets to New York City, you you still believe it. Yeah. Because you're invested in that character. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of a side point. No, it's fine. And, and we, can, uh, we can move on. So... Let's move on to number six. Number six is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. All right. Which uh, I think it's sort of self-evident why that should be on anyone's list to me. Um, Not only is it one of the greatest comedies ever made, uh, it's one of the greatest 
satire has ever made, which uh, to me is different. It's extremely funny. Um, it, it has the pinpoint precise filmmaking technique of Stanley Kubrick. Right. Almost like, um, like f- straight out of the head of Zeus. It's like perfect. It's like ex- exactly <laughs> like it should be. Yeah. Um, it's, it arrives fully formed. That's the phrase I was looking for. It arrives fully formed. It feels like, um, it feels like it can't be any different. It feels like it has to be as perfect as it is. I don't know what I mean by that, really. Mm. It mean I mean, I just mean that it's perfect. I did. I yeah. think it's a perfect comedy. But you look like you're going to say something. No, no. I was just. I'm. I'm. I'm curious to. I'm curious if I think, uh, as voted by the Battleship Pretension listeners, it is the best comedy of all time, um, and it is one that I. It was in my top 10 for a long time, and then it dropped out, probably because I hadn't seen it for a while. Yeah. And then I rewatched it, because we were going to do an episode about the top 100 comedies, and immediately I was like, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. It needs to be in my top 10, just yeah. like, just as you said. like It's one of those movies. If you're a film lover, because it's not merely funny, and it's not merely satirical, there's also some really good performances. It's mm-hmm. also shot impeccably, and so there's still a lot of filmmaking craft mm-hmm. on top of everything else. Comedy... I think people, including me, people tend to forgive comedy for being for not having a great deal of filmmaking style. Sometimes because it's just like, all right, well, we don't want to distract from the laughs. I can watch uh, Animal Crackers, Marx Brothers movie, all the way through, or Duck Soup, mm-hmm. all the way through. It's it's like it feels thrown together in a lot yeah. of ways, but I still watch it because the lines, yeah. the shtick, the Harpo shtick, the lines from Groucho, they're you know timeless. Yeah, and I do think maybe some of the best comedies. Like, if you were to look at the 10 best comedies of all time, they probably will have a fair amount of style to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Chaplin Keaton Lloyd or, sure. or uh, Mel Brooks or something like that, trying to capture the essence of a of a specific genre or something like that. But yeah, Dr. Strangelove, I almost feel like we don't need to spend much time on it just because no. it has been so talked about. When, I will ask this, though. How old were you when you first saw it? I think I was probably a teenager and I didn't quite get the... I felt like that then I didn't understand slow comedies and I feel like this is a, it could be considered a slow comedy sure. in that there's, there's some physical comedy clearly. Um, but it's mostly talk. Mm-hmm. And I think the import of what he was satirizing, uh, went over my head. Yeah. I mean, I was a smart kid, but, uh, but I, I guess I just couldn't connect the appreciation of the filmmaking the appreciation of the wonderful comic acting, yeah. um, the brilliance of Peter Sellers in three different, completely different roles, yeah. um, and the ultimate point of the lunacy of having nuclear bombs to begin with, yeah. much less negotiating with other countries about what to do about that. Um, and so I didn't quite get the connection of all those things, but once it clicked, it was probably like late teens, early 20s, and uh, and then there's no turning back. Yeah. Because you... you and also, I think you have to see other Kubrick movies to, to fully appreciate what he did with his talent in sure. that genre. Um, and actually, I think it's an, an odd thing to say, given a movie as broad as it seems, but I think it's actually very restrained. Yeah, I think so. Especially when you hear about the the pie fight sequence that could have been in there and yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, in watching it the most recent time, the thing that struck me the most that I had never picked up on and certainly... Uh, did not pick up on as a kid and probably resented it a little bit. Um, you say it's slow. That is one way of putting it. I would say it's patient. Hmm. Uh, and the thing that got me this time is how much 
there's humor to be found in this, but how much procedure there is, mm-hmm. whether it be uh, in the airplane. In the, uh, I'd say specifically in the airplane, but also just uh, as far as you know, the people on the ground trying to get to the bottom of what happened. And so they have to talk to this person mm-hmm. and this person and this person. They need approval for this and this. Uh, it's summed up probably best in the Keenan Wynn scene. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have to answer to the Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola company. company. Mm-hmm. Um, like that type of bureaucracy. And it's a bureaucracy and it's, a pr- and it's you know, a, a chain of command and all this sort of thing. Uh, the and and one could say rules of engagement that this is all stuff put in place to keep these terrible things from happening and yet and these are the things that we sort of cling to and say well surely i mean look at all the hoops that somebody needs to jump through in order to right you know uh nuclear uh annihilate somebody uh and so um it sort of reminds me i was recently uh watching an interview with a guy uh, named Adam something or other um, who uh, has a show called, I think Adam spoils everything or Adam ruins everything. I don't remember hmm. uh, in which he delves into like cultural myths. And one thing that he de- delved into was uh, the TSA. And like when you're flying all the stuff that, that you are put through as a passenger yeah. uh, and he was basically uh, exploring like what that entails and, and, uh, the stuff that that can help prevent. And that it's not really the, the, the hoops you have to jump through as a passenger aren't really preventing anything. They are meant to give the impression that, wow, they're really thorough. I'm, I must be pretty safe because surely look at all the stuff they're having me do. Surely a terrorist could not get through all of this. Um, and then it's more for the optics than anything else. And so in that same way, the way Kubrick just has people read off, this is what we need to do. We got to flip this switch and we got to dial these. Uh, we have to read out of the book of what we're supposed to do. Uh, and that all of that is, and it, it goes on so long at times that it becomes kind of funny, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you know the eventual outcome of the film, because you realize none of this is going to save It won't anybody. matter. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is a, a, it's a film that I think rewards viewing as you get older and as you become more sophisticated as a movie watcher and as a comedy fan. Right. Um, uh, did you have anything else to say before I move on? Uh, not that wouldn't start a 10 minute conversation. Fair enough. Uh, and we've got to move on. Number five is the 400 blows. All right. Which I I saw only for the first time only in the last few years. Is that right? Yeah. What, what took so long? I'm curious. Uh, uh, that's actually an unfair question. I retract it because okay. there, are, there are many, there are multitudes of what are considered great films mm. that I haven't seen. Like, why has it, hasn't, have I not seen them by now? Right. Um, I mean, Truffaut is one of the, in the pantheon of especially foreign filmmakers. Um, but why would you have to have seen his first film? I don't, I don't know why I even asked that. Yeah, I saw other films of his before I saw The 400 Blows. Probably I'd Day seen, for Night. I'd seen Day for Night. I'd mm-hmm. seen Shoot the Piano Player, um, which I loved. That's a great movie. Um, and then, yeah, I got to 400 Blows just uh, because in the same way, like my patience for uh, French cinema was low for a long time. Mm. Uh, I'm still not a big Godard fan. Um, He's hit or miss for me. But Truffaut, I think I like uh, a fair amount. I, I like his 
sense of humor and mm-hmm. also just his sense of humanity. Where I was going to say that, like, yeah, everything about everything that he's done feels infused with this love for not necessarily the characters, but with life or a question of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of everything from the movies that everyone's seen or heard of, and then ones like uh, The Man Who Loved Women. Mm-hmm. Is that the name of it? Mississippi Mermaid. Is that it? Mississippi Mermaid. See, I can't even remember You're the titles. The but I, I, I went on a spate where I, I watched all of them. Okay. And be, because I did that, you can kind of, you know, obviously make compare and contrast. And I was, I was stunned. Let me back up because I wasn't stunned. I right. just admired the fact that there was a through line in everything he did that felt like Truffaut. Mm-hmm. And when you see him, like, let's say in uh, Close Encounters, you know, he plays sure. Lacombe, uh, that guy in, uh, in Close Encounters. He's, I think that's kind of who he is. He's a... He's a, a very intelligent man who listens and who has a certain amount of authority about him, whether he tries to or not. He's just kind of there, and and he uh, he's he seems kind. He, he seems does. non-threatening he seems, and authoritative. He seems approachable. Yeah, and yet authoritative at the same time. Yeah, and that comes off a, a lot in uh, in Day for Night, where he plays, of course, the director of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I think that Four Hundred Blows, if you rewind his entire career. Maybe if you just had four hundred blows, it's uh, it's from first shot to last shot. It's it's all there. It's like that hum- humanity, that the love for humanity or humanitarian bent, you know, is is uh, completely there. Mm-hmm. And this movie fits in with a genre, a subgenre of drama that just over the years I've realized that I like that I that kind of gravitate to. to and that is what I would call, I guess, boy in distress hmm. um, dramas or lonely child dramas or something. I make kind of a short list of them, like Running on Empty. Okay. It's one of my favorites, a Sidney Lumet movie. Yeah. A movie called Kess. Oh, yeah. Which is... Just, I've never seen it, but I've it's heard... It's so sad and yeah. beautiful. Um, Sling Blade. Sure. Is one of those to me. Iron Giant, even. Yeah. Uh, Ivan's Childhood, a Tarkovsky yeah, I film. I love that movie. It's a great movie. Uh, ordinary People could... I thought of Ordinary People, but it's. Uh, I didn't write it down only because it's not not one of my favorites. Okay. Whereas all of these would fit into a, a list of favorites. My Life as a Dog, um, Central Station. There's a, a bunch more. Yeah. And in a sense, I wouldn't say that this is like the epitome of them, but it is, it is way up there for me. Um, I know my memory of my own childhood is... As as although I had friends and I had a, a mom who loved me and a sister and brother who loved me, I always had the sense of feeling alone and kind of feeling detached from. I was around adults a lot, and, I, and there's a sense of when you're a kid of being detached from that world. And there's you don't understand that world, you don't know how to bridge the gap to that world. You don't even know what that world is. So you, they're bigger than you. And you're slightly afraid of them all the time, you know, and I've, I felt that when I felt like I was around adults so much. And then I, I never felt like I get along. I never felt like I fit in with my friends, my own age, even though I had friends. Yeah. And so now growing up and loving film and seeking out films and trying to see as many films as I can, the films I se- seem to gravitate toward or at least remember later are films like this, where it's a kid who is not necessarily... You would never categorize him as a bad kid. You see, yeah. you see enough of his personality and his natural bent 
and and all this that you you would never classify him as a bad kid, but he does bad things. Right. I never did bad things. I was the kind of kid who always obeyed, um, was always afraid of punishment, wanted to be liked by adults, and so I'd always obey. Um, he is not. <laughs> he's, yeah. he, in this movie, he's Antoine is a kid who, because he's bored, because he's got friends who have stronger personalities, like he has that one friend that says, oh, let's just skip today. And he's, okay, let's do that. Yeah. And they end up going like to the fair and doing the uh, centrifugal force thing and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, I felt like I was that kid. I was the Antoine kid who would kind of go along with somebody else that they were doing something that wasn't necessarily going to get us both in trouble, but that was not necessarily what I should be doing. Um, and so, so seeing that kind of play out in, in this um, non-plot-driven, very sweet-natured film um, where he does definitely get in trouble, uh, where he does pay consequences, where he does end up getting sent to a, a boarding school, yeah. um, and where by the end of the movie you have no idea where he's going to end up. Yeah. Uh, and there's also an, an element of even when he tries to do the right thing, he screws, like, it gets screwed up. Like when Taking the typewriter back. Yeah. And, and like, lighting candles to... Yeah, to, for Balzac. Yeah. Um, and then it lights something on fire. Like, he's trying to do good things and just... He's just, a screw-up. Yeah. Let's face it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I relate to so much to him because of those things. Not because... And also, uh, I think... Truffaut, just from a, a filmmaking point of view or from a casting point of view, picked a kid who is perfect for this role yeah. because he doesn't he doesn't he, he kind of looks like he could be a snot. Sure. He d- he also looks like he could be your best friend, you know, like a, a kid who you could get along with and that adults would like. He has kind of a blank face. Yeah, he kinda he seems like an every kid. He seems like an every kid and he seems like no matter what's happening to him, he kind of looks the same. On his expression, always looks the same. Mm-hmm. And so he's doing this thing where, in filmmaking terms, he's like, you know, you you layer your own feelings onto what he's experiencing, and that's audience identification, whatever yeah. you want to call it. But I feel like that he's so perfectly cast. That scene that is just kind of a revelation where he's uh, he's being interrogated by the social services kit uh, mm-hmm. person, um, asking questions about like, do you have girlfriends? Um, have you ever had sex? I mean, it's really kind of a, a bold movie in terms of the kind of questions he's asking. Um, and the way he's answering is so honest and so matter-of-fact. Um, the whole thing just seems so real. And part of that is Truffaut's style, filmmaking yeah. style, that French New Wave style that was that he was basically birthing. He and Godard back in 5960. Um, it's all there. And it, it's it's a movie that is easy to watch because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't ask a whole lot of you in terms of like remembering plot or, or uh, you don't feel down about the movie. You don't feel triumphant. It's it's a very easy to move, movie to watch because you feel like you're just watching a slice of life. Yeah. Um, I just love the movie. I love it. All right, we will move on. And I love Truffaut. Yeah, have you seen? Uh, so you've seen all of his films? I said I, I saw all of them, but I, I think I, I'm still missing maybe three or four of them. But he made okay. like I mean, he died way too young. But he made maybe twenty movies, and he made several more movies than the Antoine Doinel made four more. Yeah, and I think I saw the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I saw Four Hundred Blows, and then I saw the second one, the name of which I have forgotten. Love um, on the Run, or 
I think it was Love on the Run, but it mi- actually that might be the third one. Yeah, I can't. The second can't one might be. Straight. I think it's Antoine and and then I think a girl's name. But I, oh, that was a short. It was like half an hour. And okay, I, okay. Yeah, you're um, right. So that came after, and then and then four more movie like feature length films yeah. came out. Um, so yeah, it. Uh, 400 Blows is a, is, a, is a great film. I was I was wrong to to lump him in with Godard because I think one is very much a, a humanist and the other one could say is a little bit misanthropic um, and didactic. Sure. Although there are movies that aren't that don't feel didactic. Although his purposes were hmm. didactic. Like I, I would say, Breathless is not that. I think Breathless is a movie that you you certainly you watch the filmmaking style and it's part of the enjoyment of watching is watching the jump cuts and yeah and the uh, sort of um, the sense of place because of the kind of shirt she's wearing or right. the haircut. I mean, all of it just feels stylized to a certain degree, but it also has that because it's in the streets, it's a camera on the streets with you mm-hmm. kind of falling behind them or you're in the backseat of the cars or driving down the street, all these yeah. things makes you feel there. And that's what the French new wave kind of brought to film yeah. is that kind of thing where you're, you are there. Um, we're riffing on Hollywood Noir, essentially, in yeah. uh, a lot of good arts first movies, um, and in Shoot the Piano Player, you know, yeah, Truffaut's yeah. movie. Um, and so th- there's a fun in sort of film nerd parlance, fun in watching those movies because of what they brought to cinema after them. Um, and yet somehow it just doesn't... Uh, you don't like I've, I've only seen two of his films. I've seen Breathless and Band of Outsiders. And okay. um, maybe there's a third that I've seen, but uh, I don't recall. And so, um, and I didn't really respond to those, and those are considered his best. One of my favorites is uh, Pierre LeFou. Okay. Which is, uh, it's another one of these movies where he doesn't care if you realize it's a movie. There's this wonderful scene where um, the protagonist, who's kind of taken up with another woman, driving down the street, realizes he's running out of gas, so they pull into a gas station, and they have to get away, they don't have money to pay for it. So he gets in an altercation with the guy who's pumping the gas, or the guy who owns the station, and uh, and the scene devolves into what would be a a fake fight, mm-hmm. and it's clearly supposed to be a fake fight. It's kind of a wide shot, and the main character is just kind of like taking a swing. It's clearly far away, and the other guy's kind of doing one of these like barely flopping away, and yeah. and it's supposed to be fake. And you're like, at one point, you're like, why? Why wouldn't he like construct a scene to where we're actually feeling tense because he needs to get out of there? It's because it's true. It's because it's a uh, good art, and yeah. he, and the beginning of the movie has all these scenes where it's just red or whatever and you're like okay so it's a good art movie anything can happen or not happen yeah um but it's it's a i love that movie they just start singing in the middle of a scene hmm. for no reason but it's if you go into it knowing that it's a good art movie where he's riffing on the fact that it's a movie it's great to watch it's a, it's one of my favorites of his for sure yeah none of that sounds good to me <laughs> I, I think i it's it's something i would probably appreciate more than actually enjoy I would not want to hear him talk about it because I mean, he's, he would be talking about the deconstruction of film technique and all this kind of stuff. And it's, yeah. it's fun for him to talk about that, but it's fun for me just to watch the result of his yeah. thought process. Yeah. Uh, okay. We should move on. Number oh, um, four. Number four right? is, um, weirdly tied to number five. It's bottle rocket. Okay. Um, and the reason I say is because Wes Anderson, uh, attributes Truffaut as one of his main inspirations. In I terms could of like that. Style, some, some of the, um, the way he treats characters or the kind of scenarios he puts those characters in. Um, but Bottle Rocket, I, I wrestle with this. It's like I, Rushmore is also commonly in my top. When yeah. people say, what's your favorite movie? It used to be Rushmore. I would just say Rushmore. Um, 
it's kind of, uh, it became Bottle Rocket after I watched Rushmore again, after a couple of years. And I, I realized that there was something about, we, you asked about art earlier, mm-hmm. like, does it have to be artful? And obviously any Wes Anderson movie is artful in that way that... Sometimes too much, one could say. Yeah, that drives a lot of people crazy and makes other people want to be him or whatever, or want to emulate him. Um, but the, uh, I don't know, there's something art- less conspicuously artful about um, Bottle Rocket that makes it feel more real, and also the characters and the kind of things they seem to be going through, or the kind of personalities that they represent, I feel more connected to than in any other movie of his. And I, I, I don't think I said this, but I love Wes Anderson movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen them all, love them all, have up to a certain point uh, defended them, and then I just gave up defending them to people that don't like Wes Anderson movies because yeah. you can't really convince people that don't like that style to suddenly like it because of this theme or because of this character or because of this dialogue. You just right. can't do it. I give up. Um, but now I say Bottle Rocket. Um, I almost said a second ago because I rewatched Rushmore, and I still love Rushmore, but there's something broken about the plot that really gets on my nerves now hmm. it feels like there's repetition in the plot that it, it kind of in terms of like a full movie watching experience it drags for me um that the other movies seem to correct uh, the, the ones beyond like Bombs and beyond seem to hmm. correct um and but i still love rushmore i definitely love i was just thinking about it that's why there was silence i definitely love rushmore but the reason I put Bottle Rocket in this list is because when I watch it, I get this melancholy feeling, as I do with any Wes Anderson film, but this mm-hmm. one especially. I get a melancholy feeling with regard to the predicament of these guys. These poor, I know what you're going to say because we talked about Bottle Rocket kind of off, off mic, but um, they are characters that seem lost they're characters that seem like they're wanting to achieve something, or at least Dignan, wanting to achieve something. It's it's hyperbolized, if that's a word, in his 75-year plan that he reveals at the beginning in his notebook. And so it's a, it's broad, for sure. No one would actually have a 75-year plan that they're right. serious about. Um, but he does. And so it's comic. It's definitely a comic movie. But um, the melancholy that I feel alongside them as they're trying to figure out who they are is something that I still feel to this day. The older I get, I thought, you know, that would go away. But I still have that feeling. And when I sit and watch Bottle Rocket, the kind of down feeling that Dignan ends up having through most of the movie, yeah. I feel that way so much. And he just wants he just wants friends to help him do this thing. He just wants to be around his friends. Meanwhile, uh, Anthony, his best friend is the kind of guy I feel like I am a lot too. Mm-hmm. He's a different kind of guy, but I still feel like I'm this guy. And that's the guy who thinks too much about about his brain, his own brain. Dignan doesn't. Dignan thinks about what he wants to do, yeah. what he wants to achieve, but doesn't necessarily think about anything in- inner. Um, Anthony seems like that's all he wants to do. In fact, he's escaping from a what they call a mental hospital the beginning of the movie and the guy his doctor yells out the window try not to save the world or try not to save everybody mm-hmm. he goes I'll try doctor and of course he tries to save Dignan for the rest of the movie by going along with his harebrained scheme um, and I feel like I'm that guy a lot of times I feel like I feel like I'm the guy who wants even though even if it might hurt me even when I should be trying to talk the guy out of it 
I want to help him with this project. I want to help him see, um, realize his dream. Um, this is, all sounds more grandiose than it actually is in my life, mm-hmm. but on, on a smaller scale than someone trying to rob a bank or trying to go on the land from the law, which is what this movie is about. Um, it's, you know, it, it's encouraging people that might not necessarily deserve encouragement or maybe they should try something else at this point in their life right. um, because that's not working. Instead, I, I tend to want to encourage. I want to help. And there's this wonderful line in, uh, in Bottle Rocket where some girl that used to be in Anthony's girlfriend's sorority house says, you're complicated, aren't you? And Anthony says, just kind of with a shrug, he says, I try not to be. <laughs> Which is, to me is just a great line because if you're saying that, I don't really need to explain it, but I will. Um, if you're saying that, then you have thought too much about the idea of being too yeah. internalized um, and being complicated. I try not to be. Um, and I feel like I'm that. I try not to be too complicated, but in trying to be not complicated, you're complicating things. I yep. do that all the time, and it just trips me up way too often. Um, why it's in the top ten seems to be the question on your face. No, it's fine. I think because to this day, I still get really emotional um, when it comes to the end and Dignan. I don't think I'm spoiling it because it's not a story to spoil. Yeah, it's just a really. series of moments like it is in most of his movies. But the moment at the end when he decides that he's going to be the one that goes back in to get the the, the team player who is down and right. needs help. Um, Anthony wants to go in because that's his nature. He says, no, run, Dignan, run from the law. It's, it's on its way. It's gonna, they're going to take you to jail. He says, screw it, man. They can't catch me because I'm innocent. And he is. He's kind of innocent in his own way. And he becomes aware of that in that moment. And he chooses to sacrifice himself and says, I'm going to go in. So he goes in. And there's and the, the music that Wes Anderson puts over, the, over the, that scene and the whole getting beat up by the cops feels a little over the top in the telling. But in the watching, it just feels so sad. It's like sad that this person who just wanted this thing to work out and now has complicated everyone's lives, including his own, mostly his own, now goes to jail. Then cut to, he's in jail, his friends show up, and... He should be angry at the other ones because or Anthony wonders why Dignan isn't angry. And he, Dignan just sort of says, eh, I don't know, that happened. You know, now, we're, now I'm in jail. I'll be out of jail soon. And just sort of shrugs it off. And it feels very Wes Anderson-y. Yes, it does. Um, because it happens over and over again in other movies. It's like people just kind of come to the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of their lives, and they're just sort of kind of still shrugging. Yeah. Um, and then they find that one person who's still going to love them. And... Uh, I don't know, that's kind of what I love about the through line of his movies, among many other things. But um, kind of like 400 Blows being a, the debut movie of Truffaut and this being the debut movie of, of uh, Wes Anderson. It just feels like so much is kind of wrapped up in that first movie that gets meted out in different ways, hmm. maybe weaker ways, but definitely different ways uh, in their later movies. It's just sort of pure in their first movie, and I just love it. Seems like that's my tag at the end of all these. I don't know. I just love it. it which it could probably be the tag at, at the end of most people's top ten, uh, including mine. I mean, I can talk about it all day long, but like when when a movie is loved that much, there is usually an intangible quality that you can't really put words to. Intangible. That's how I, that's how I feel about uh, Nashville. The intangible. It reminds me of a mo- one moment when I... <laughs> I went to a party with a friend of mine. This is back when I would actually indulge in drink. Oh. Not that I'm against drinking, but I just don't do it anymore. Maybe it's marriage. I don't know. But um, 
I went to a party with some friends and I drank too much and my friend drove us home and uh, he was my roommate. And so he went to his room and I decided that I was going to pop in Bottle Rocket and the DVD player picked up where it had last left off. I guess maybe it was still in the player. I don't know, but it was toward the end of the movie and I started crying. I was a little bit tipsy still. And so I was a little emotional. I get emotional when I drink. Um, and I was sitting there on the couch just kind of watching the end play out and I started crying. <laughs> and if I was sober, like completely sober, and I started doing that, I would, I might question myself. Like, I think I'm too into this movie. It doesn't deserve mm-hmm. that necessarily. I get emotional still because I relate. But that's just it. My friend Tim came back into the room and he looked at me and I was kind of crying. And he said, are you okay? And I, I just looked at him and I said, while I'm crying and while I'm still a little bit drunk, I said, I just don't understand why I relate to these guys. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, and I still feel that way. I don't yeah. really understand why I relate to the movie so much. But when I watch it, I'm into it. And I feel like I'm one of those guys. Yeah. Huh. I shrug. Well, like a Wes lines, Anderson character. So I probably shouldn't say why I don't like the movie. Um, I know why, but you can tell them. Uh, these people are idiots and I have a hard time. And now I feel like I'm calling you an idiot because you no. relate to them. Um, I am an idiot. No, you're not that Mostly. dumb. Uh, it's I have a hard time watching dumb people do dumb things. Mm. Uh, and don't get me wrong, like uh, other Wes Anderson characters are a little bit dumb at times, or at the very least, kind of slaves to their own nature, uh, which I think is definitely as you're talking about this, definitely the case with Bottle Rocket, mm-hmm. uh, Luke Wilson's character, especially. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just have a hard time with it. But at the same time, um, I've had a number of people say that I remind them of Max Fisher hmm. from Rushmore, including my own dad. Wow. Uh, he and I went to see the movie. He, we both really loved it. And as we were driving home, he goes, you know, that kid reminds me a lot of you. I was like, well, I don't think I, 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 don't think I knew this term at the time, but uh, I essentially said, you mean the sociopath? <laughs> yeah. That's no good. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there's an element to Wes Anderson's films where the characters, there's a specificity to them, but there's also a certain degree of, there's a vague quality to them that can allow you to imprint some of yourself onto them, or at least recognize it where it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, I'm not a big fan of Bottle Rock. It's probably my least favorite of his films. Um, with Tenenbaums probably being my favorite. Mm. Uh, but I will not begrudge you your love of the film. There are, I love there are movies much. that I love that uh, people don't understand. Honestly, uh, not to belabor it too much, but Bottle Rocket was the first of his movies I saw mm. because I'm old enough that I saw it in a theater. I saw it in a theater, and I remember I saw it with a group of friends at film school. And we watched it in a, uh, it was a double feature, which doesn't make any sense that this, this was a double feature, but it was a double feature of Kenneth Branagh's um, a Winter's Tale, okay, and Bottle Rocket, huh? But of course, Bottle Rocket had just been released very, you know, not wide at all. It's just like yeah. a, a th- the kind of theater that would also show that kind of movie, yeah, that Branagh movie. And so uh, we went for Winter's Tale. Believe it or not, we went for Winter Winter's Tale. Watched that movie, and we decided it was still kind of early. We'll watch this Bottle Rocket. What yeah. a strange title. And uh, and we watched it, and that's what we talked about afterwards. I did not get it. I this is another. F- fascinating to me fa- uh, factor of all of Wes Anderson's movies almost every single one of them even when I love Wes Anderson movies the later ones I go to see it and I don't 
know what I just saw. Yeah. I don't get it. And I, I, I love it because I love the style and I love the melancholy and I love the kind of characters and the brand of dialogue that is all his own. Um, but I don't understand it. I don't laugh at it necessarily. It has to come with the second or third viewing. That that's holds true to that first viewing of Bottle Rock. I didn't really know what I saw. I came out, my friends were fascinated by the by the way it looked. Yeah. And the colors. And it was clearly thought out and and it was funny. And so they talked about it. I, it was maybe what six or eight months later, and it came out on DVD or whatever. And I was in the in the store. I was like, I saw it, and it was for sale. I hadn't even seen it the second time. It was for sale for like five bucks or whatever. And it was with my friend Tim, and uh, and I bought it, and I went home, and I just started watching it again, and I fell in love with it. And mm-hmm. I, was lo- I was like, this is so different. And now I get it. I get it. I get why I was drawn to it at all when I saw it, and it was the melancholy. Yeah. Um. But you do start seeing like the the craft of it and the 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 specificity of the dialogue and the kind of dialogue and the the kind of relationships, especially after you see um, Rushmore and yeah. then the next one and the next one you see they all connect together yeah. in terms of the kind of characters. And so it, it was one of those movies that I just I really feel ownership of because I got to love it before Wes Anderson became a thing, and and I went to see Rushmore because I love Bottle Rocket so much. Um, I don't know if you call it, maybe that's part of being a movie snob is when you can, can kind of tag that as your movie because you, you liked it before everyone else or something. It's snobbish. Yeah. It's, it's arrogant, uh, pretentious. It's not so much that there is, there are some movies that, I mean, I remember, uh, a big one for me was, uh, the big Lebowski. Mm. I was 16 when I saw it really responded to, I'd seen Fargo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lebowski, like I, I loved it, and then maybe two years later, probably video actually is when it came out on video. Um, people really said like, "Wow, this movie's so strange and delightful and mm-hmm. profane and all of these things." And people really responded to it. And I was like, "I saw it twice in the theater, jerks!" Right. And uh, and then you know watched it over and over on on VHS and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, and there is this there is this attitude. I think. F- to a certain extent, there's this feeling of, well, now if I say that this is one of my favorite movies of all time, I'll just look like everybody else who says yep. it's one of their favorite movies of all time. But I liked it first. Yeah. You know? And it's not it's not I arrived there before everybody else. It's not that. It's I'm not a follower. I'm not uh, just going along with the trend, you know. Right. Um, I saw L.A. Confidential in the th- I was 15 yeah. when I saw that and loved it, thought it was amazing. And now... Amongst people my age, I saw it before everybody else because they, what 15 year old's going to want to see LA Confidential? Right. Uh, come to find out that, uh, you know, the Oscars and industry people and Everyone. Film critics, they all loved it. But yeah. people my age, they found it a few years later. Well, the other thing about Bottle Rocket is, and surely you have one of these kind of movies too. I think every film snob probably has one. It's like, mm-hmm. if you don't like this movie, then I don't really know if I know you anymore. Hmm. I certainly don't like you anymore. <laughs> I felt like that. Uh, Bottle Rock was that movie for me for a long time. I was like, because it meant so much to me, almost not right away, but once it became a meaningful movie to me. And I loved the humor, and I didn't understand why... It's one of those fascinating psychological things with regard to film or any art. It's like, if somebody says something about something that you kind of love, yeah, kind of love, not absolute, you kind of love, and they come along and they say, oh, yeah, but what about this? You go, yeah, but what about this? And the more you defend it, the more you love it. Yeah. And the more defensive you become 
about yeah. it. And you just hold it, and then it becomes even more yours. Not only do you see it first, but now you're the only one defending it against like this person who just kind of like that's what you have against it. Well, what about all this other stuff? Yeah. And so it got to the point where if somebody saw a bottle rocket and they went, eh, I'd go, what? It's yeah. but everything. It's well made. Maybe the story. It's not. It's a non-plot driven story. I'll, I'll grant you that. But the characters are watchable. They're fun. There's fun dialogue. It's shot extremely well, and uh, and it's it doesn't ask that much of you. It's it's like a dog. It's a puppy. It just wants to love you. So how can you hate it? When people say they hate Bottle Rocket, that's when I really don't get it. I want you to know, it's by way of confession, that I've moved beyond the point of dismissing a person because they've dismissed Bottle Rocket. Oh, okay. I just go, okay, well I get it because a lot of people don't like Wes Anderson. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I don't understand why you don't like it exactly, but I know a lot of people are like you, and that's okay. You mean me specifically? Because I do like Wes Anderson. I know, and I also don't understand people that like some of his movies but not others, because they are so much of a piece to me in my mind. I think there are times when there there's when a filmmaker can steer so much into themselves hmm. that they start making movies and writing characters that could only exist in a Wes Anderson universe. Whereas I feel like, and that's a weird thing to, a weird way of putting it, but like I didn't really respond to Moonrise Kingdom that well. Um, there are aspects to Grand Budapest Hotel that I didn't really like. Um, and just, I think as his career went along, he would have characters, they would make these declarative statements with a straight face. And after a while it's like, it's one thing to create characters that I can imprint myself onto because, and there's a certain blankness to them. It's another thing to just do this style because that's the style in which you do things. And mm-hmm. I feel like the same thing happened with David Mamet. Hmm. Um, whereas he went along, he would write stuff and he would have people say things not because it sprang organically from the character he had crafted, but because that's how David Mamet characters talk. Um, same is true of, uh, uh, Chayefsky. Except sure. he started that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He totally He's, started yeah. that way. Um, and so I think, uh, and and Bottle Rocket, I think it's just for whatever reason. I just I don't think I have interest in the characters that he had created. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think for me, the first, and I do think every film snob has this: the movie that they love, usually at a younger age, uh, and other people, whether it be other film snobs or just other or just peers, they just don't get it and embrace it the way you do for me that was fargo hmm. um i saw it with my dad i was probably i saw it on video i didn't see it in the theater because it was 14 when i came out uh, i was 14 when i when it came out um so he and i watched it on video i think i was probably 15 or 16 and uh and i was just like and that i couldn't verbalize it i couldn't verbalize <laughs> what i loved about it um because i was still too young for that um but i would tell my friends about it and they'd be like that movie was dumb i'm like what what dumb? who are these people what <laughs> And then I realized, oh, right, there are other 15-year-olds. Fargo's not necessarily meant for 15-year-olds. But I don't know, because, I, not to interrupt you, but it's like that movie, it definitely has that Coen Brothers stamp that in some movies, like maybe Hudsucker Proxy or something, it's like you have to like the Coen Brothers to like that movie, right. I think. Um, but Fargo is is a movie that a crime film lover could love still, even if they don't like anything else by them. You they I mean? could, except the crime is poorly executed, poorly conceived. I think crime movie lovers, they don't, they're not used to seeing Marge Gunderson. I guess you're right. They're not used to the William H. Macy type. They're not used to that scene between Marge and uh, Mike Yanagita. You know, all these things that make it 
the Coen Brothers thing and separate it from your average crime thriller, yeah. I think is what I like about it. Um, but I certainly wasn't able to. And I don't mean to say that like that I was smarter or more in tune than other people my age. It's just that for whatever reason, maybe because of the parents I had, maybe because of the older brother I had, I was exposed to slightly more adult movies at a slightly younger age. Right. And so I think some of it, uh, what was that? But anyway, we need to move on. Your number three, what do you got? Annie Hall. Annie, Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Yeah. Which you would, we've spoken about uh, when you on your first appearance. Yes. It is, I believe, it's in Josh's top ten somewhere. Oh, that's so right. So we talked about that. Okay. Um, it's just a movie that people like, including me. I think it's good. Yeah. Uh, but I guess it still begs the question, why is it in my top ten? And why is it in your top three? Oh, yeah. Why, is it, why isn't it number one after that two and a half hour discussion? Why, why, why isn't one through five a Woody Allen movie? I don't know. Um, Or why isn't, why isn't the Coen brothers anywhere in there? I don't really don't know that. Um, But anyway. They almost were. They almost were. Almost. They were, they were an alternate. Yes, they were. Um, Behind the scenes. No, Annie Hall, uh, I I had to, (laughs) maybe this is the wrong way to approach it, but I knew there had to be a Woody Allen movie in there somewhere in the Mm. top 10 because he's just been one of my favorite filmmakers for as long as I can remember. But then the problem is, more so than Kubrick, more so than Corn Brothers or Howard Hawks. You know, it's like he's got so many movies and I love so many of them. Yeah. Which can I put? Well, I feel like that the, the Annie Hall is the quintessential Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Um, it's the most approachable of his post-straight comedy movies. Uh, maybe not. Uh, it's the most well-known approachable one. Yeah. Um, there are m- more that if you watch them, you go, oh, wow. Like Man- Manhattan Murder Mystery is extremely approachable. Bullets over Broadway, I think, is very approachable. It's approachable. Um, but this one, it, the level of creativity in it, it's like, it's in a way, it's just occurred to me, but um, in a way, it's sort of like the co- comedy uh, Citizen Kane. Hmm. Okay, now I have to d- defend that, don't I? Um, keep in mind, I just came up with this, like, right now. I need a full-throated uh, defense of what you just well, said. Well, Citizen Kane uh, is praised, and I think it ended up at the top of so many lists for so long because of its innovation. Um, it, uh, in terms of character development or a character revelation, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, in terms of us, us cinematic techniques used the number of them and how well they were used, uh, beyond just having been used. Well, I feel like that, that Annie Hall is a great example of a movie that, uh, a very gifted comedian given a certain budget and given a camera used, um, creative storytelling devices in a way that had never been done, or at least in a combination or in an amount that had not been done. I mean, the the flashbacks, the way the flashbacks operate in the movie. Well, first of all, I guess you're just talking to the camera at the beginning of the movie yeah. and setting it up for the audience in such a way that when you really think about it, it actually happens after the end of the movie because he's talking about breaking up. Right. And then at the last, in the last bit, he's just breaking up. So I, I like to imagine Woody Allen running away from that last scene into his apartment, setting up the camera, and then recording what we see at the beginning of the movie. To me, that's just kind of fun. But um, but that the idea of like talking directly to the camera, which he had done in several of his early broad comedies, but now he's utilizing in a much different way here. Um, the way the flashbacks operate, where you can kind of semi-interact with the past, yeah, or talk to the past, or that um, that wonderful split screen where her family and his family are seen in a, you know, a, a split screen is nothing new. Yeah. Speaking of the French new wave um, and seventies films, but uh, 
but the fact that at one point during that split screen, Annie Hall's mom says, what operation or whatever are you talking about? And then one of those family members talks over the line to them um, is a different way of using the split screen. It's just kind of a creative comic cartoon kind of way. He uses a cartoon clip to Mm -hmm. show what's going on in his own mind about his relationship with Annie. Um, There's just like one after the other. It feels like... um, it feels like he's just kind of doing what he wants to do and not caring if it makes it great or if it doesn't make it great. It's just yeah. like it feels right for that moment, and he does it. And then he and Rosenblum, Ralph Rosenblum, the, the editor, mm-hmm. got in the editing room and said, okay, so you can get rid of that. You can do this. You can put this together. And, oh, wait, we've got something that actually focuses on Annie Hall. Let's make yeah. the movie about her. And it just works so well. And I could... You could watch them. I watched the movie from any point. You don't have to know what came before it necessarily, except that he just broke up with her. Yeah. Um, to get what's going on. Um, I remember once, now I'm talking about a movie I love so much, I'm just saying everything. Um, I remember once for fun, I saw that, you know, on the extras, the extras on a Woody Allen film is like, you know, French. You know, you can watch it in French <laughs> or a scene menu. You know, that, that's yeah. all, all any Woody Allen movie gives you. But one of them was, of course, you could see, you could listen to it in French. So what I did was I watched like 20 minutes of the movie with the French dialogue um, dub and the American or the English um, American. So what do you call that word? Provincial or something? Um, The English subtitles. Mm -hmm. And I promise you it felt exactly like watching a foreign film because of the kind of movie it is, because, because of how it's jumbled up, because it's not straightforward, it's... It's not even narrative, really. Yeah. It just feels like a lot of pieces of somebody's life edited together. It's like last year at Marienbad or something like that. Yeah. Um, And it's just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to watch it that way for about 20 minutes, and then it got old. Sure. It's it's an odd movie in that it feels like, and this is not a, I feel like a lot of films don't accomplish this. It feels like an experimental film that works completely. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of movies... Not a lot, but, uh, you know, there are some movies that one would say, mm, there's a lot of experimentation in this, and I appreciate what they're trying to do, but it is only an experimental film, and that's it. Yeah. You know, uh, whether it be with filmmaking technique or storytelling or whatever. Um, whereas this, when you break down the t- all the different things that he, all the different techniques he employs to tell his story and, and make the film... It's like, this doesn't feel like it should hang together. It feels like he's being experimental. Um, And maybe he is. Uh, But it all works. And you have a strong, you know, at the end of an experimental film, you tend not to have a strong sense of character, relationship, and uh, story beats. And yet you do at the end of this, even though it's not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily told chronologically, right? It kind of jumps around. it's all over the place. And so I feel like that's, it's such a fascinating way to deal with it and in doing so he makes it not so much about where we're on the we're on the outside looking at a relationship it captures what a relationship feels like and you know when we are thinking back on a relationship or even thinking about the one we're in right now romantic or otherwise um you know what happens in our mind won't necessarily reflect the world we live in or even the truth of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so 
it makes sense to go into animation sometimes because sure. sometimes that's how you feel. Yeah. It makes sense to to be big and bombastic, or or especially if you're a film person, to jump into different genres and and oh, I wish I had said this, you know, the way this movie character did or something like that, even though that's not how people act in real life. Right. So that's there. There's it is maybe one of the most truthful movies I've ever seen, even though it feels like it would be so distancing as far as the technique. There's, it's For me, it's fascinating when I think about the technique of the movie um, because it, it does feel different in in comparison to his first five movies, which mm-hmm. are all these broad comedies, which, of course, if you look at the trajectory of those, his filmmaking talent is clearly you know, getting stronger and stronger. Right. Um, but he's also coming from his history of writing those comic essays and being a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And most of his material in his uh, stand-up comedy is is this kind of out of nowhere non sequitur picture jokes? Yeah, and Annie Hall feels like the apotheosis of that kind of thing, where it's like, um, let's take everything that I I've learned about my own life. He was probably about forty, forty two when he made the movie, and learn about life and how much uh, romance sucks eventually, um, and marry that to all these kind of fun things that I've done, either with the, the written word. Um, or stand, uh, in stand-up comedy or in my essays, and what I've learned about filmmaking in these five movies, and just go for it. And and I want to make a movie that's not always just making jokes about whatever. It's not one-liners, which it was, even as his filmmaking got better. Right. It was still kind of, you know, gag-based. Yeah. Verbal gag and visual gag-based. Let's strip away all of that gagness. Keep jokes, of course, because my character is funny, I'm a comedy writer, um, but you know, add, add to that the the weight of a real person, mm-hmm. and see what happens while still kind of being creative, like I was in those essays, yeah. or like I was in my stand-up. And it's such a, a, it feels like a jump when you just look at the movies, but when you look at his entire career, it seems so incredibly logical. Um, that said, I was talking with a, fr- with a friend of mine the other day about love and death, and just about how complete the parody is mm-hmm. in that movie um, without going into it, just let it be that. And on the strength of how complete that parody is verbally, visually, um, physically, he could have gone on and done five or six more of those, like one a year for five more years. Yeah. And they all would have been great because they would have been building on that, but it still would have been, I'm glad that he went the direction he did, but he could have, if he wanted to just kind of coasted on that aspect of his funny creativity mm-hmm. um maybe he just got bored with it actually the truth is he had been he'd been writing plays also and he wrote um played against sam mm-hmm. which he'd done on broadway with i believe with diane keaton and tony roberts and uh and so that's a much more serious it's actually a movie that came out a year before annie hall between love and death and annie hall but it was directed by somebody else um and it, it's much more like annie hall than it is like love and death because it's about a real relationship falling apart hmm. um real romance with a lot of jokes. Um, he also did The Front, which what he didn't right. write or direct. He was just a character in the movie, and so he was probably learning how to be an actor, a better yeah. actor. And so, and let's not forget Casino Royale. Well, that was much <laughs> earlier, and he's so broad, just like the movie is. I think yeah. he's awful. <laughs> I never saw it. Mm. I'm curious you, about it because of the uh, inclusion of uh, Orson Welles. Yeah. That's primarily why I'm interested. Peter O'Toole and... Yeah. All these guys. It's just such a big, fat 60s mess. Which makes it... A big, fat 60s mess 
is always going to be interesting mm. to me, uh, even if it's not entertaining. It feels like everything that's like that was wrong with making comedies at that time all jammed into one movie. Ooh. So maybe you will like it. Maybe I will. Or at least I'll uh, not even appreciate it, but just be like, I'm happy I saw that. Yeah. Um, we should move on. Okay. Top two. Top two. My number, number two, two is a movie called Playtime. Mm-hmm. I struggled and struggled because I don't know where to start with this movie. It is so... Jacques Tati. It's a... Okay, there you go. Perfect. Who directed it? Uh, a guy named Jacques Tati. It's his uh, third outing as the character Mr. Hulot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, it's, it's sort of an esoteric movie in that maybe not a lot of people outside of like strict film circles have heard of Mr. Hulot or heard of Playtime even. Yeah, probably not. Um, I mean, when you think of French cinema from like the sixties, mm-hmm. you do think of Truffaut, yeah. you think of Godard. Yeah. You don't think of Tati. I think of all three of them at the exact same time. Hmm. Tati, I would say is probably alternates between when I get pretentious on myself, um, between him and Ozu, actually. Um, and just in terms of like, when I'm sitting down and I'm really just absorbing the look and feel of a movie that hits a, that hits what it's going for so perfectly, I think of those two guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both extremely visual directors. Uh, all that kind of beside the point. Um, Playtime is a movie uh, starring uh, its director, Jacques Tati, as... The character, Mr. Hulot, who is sort of, I want to say, kind of bumbling about uh, the big city. Yeah. And Often he, just kind of observing. He's an observer yeah. in all of, the, all of his movies. He's an observer. Uh, his other two movies are uh, uh, Mr. Hulot's Holiday, mm-hmm. where he goes on vacation by the sea, and it's a bunch of sight gags, really. And it's brilliant. But it's just that. It's just sight gags. Um, he ups the ante in the second movie with Mr. Hulot called... Um, Mon uncle, or mm-hmm. my uncle, uh, wherein he plays a guy who is sort of on the other side of the tracks, sort of the poor part of Paris, um, but his his sister lives in the new sparkly side of Paris, mm-hmm. with a brand new house, has all these fancy electronics and stuff that do weird things, and uh, he goes over to kind of hang out with his sister, her husband, and their kid, his nephew, and uh, in that movie, he sort of advances whatever um, themes you might draw from a Tati movie by the comparison of those two worlds. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's like, what are we, where are we headed with this kind of thing? What are we losing from humanity by doing this? Or, really, that's what you could take away from it, but Mr. Hulo himself is just kind of there. Yeah, He's sort of a throwback to a time when it was okay to be simple. It's like, the way I like to think about it is, uh, the character Mr. Hulo is the past before it wanted to be the future. That's how mm-hmm. I think about it. It's like, I'm okay with being this way. Oh, and isn't that kind of strange? How does this thing work? And he's yeah. okay with being around it. It's just that whatever he's around tends to best him in yeah. a comic way. Um, and he's befuddled by it. But you recognize, because of his utter simplicity, um, you recognize kind of how ridiculous technology is. Yeah. Or how anything that's now considered advanced yeah, that's I, I've only seen Playtime. That's the only oh, Tati film I've seen. You should seen. definitely go back. I definitely, absolutely recommend going back and seeing those other two. Yeah, uh, especially in that order, because you see the, uh, you see how, how much bigger that theme becomes from yeah. one to the next. Um. So. So what is it about Playtime as opposed to the other the other films? Because it's uh, we were talking about, uh, filmmaking, film craft. 
it is among those three the most beautifully crafted movie. And you mentioned what was it uh, in Strange Love that it's not slow; it takes its time. Yeah, this would be the absolute epitome of that kind of thing. Yeah, the entire first fifteen twenty minutes is you don't even see Hulo for a long time. You yeah. don't see him in that in this opening scene. It's just a scene in an airport where uh, a character, several characters are are waiting for their plane. And you're listening to the sounds of footsteps coming from this that direction. You, you hear the sound of a person turning to listen to where that sound might be coming from. Um, you see somebody over here drop something. That's, the, that's what it is. Then one of the qualities of this film that is different from the other two is that he ups the, ups the stakes for the viewer, if you want to call it that. It's where you could look at anywhere on the frame and you can kind of pick what you want to watch. Yeah, It's not always that way from the beginning of the movie to the end, but through a lot of it, through a lot of these scenes, these set pieces, um, there's something going on kind of everywhere. And it's not so much the beginning, it's more so in the middle. By the end, there's this restaurant scene where you've seen kind of the build-up to the opening night of this restaurant. Mm -hmm. And the management is like, oh, it's not ready, but we have to be open. And so they're like tacking things up and like nailing things that keep falling down. And so that's happening, and by the time people actually arrive and the place just becomes packed, by then, you literally could look at anywhere on the screen and kind of follow your own person. Yeah. And that's just one aspect of the brilliance. Um, the other is just how, how beautifully he frames things. So much so, this is what struck me. The big thing I come away with from Playtime is... <laughs> all right. So... Back when Jen was, uh, back when we were both in college and Jen was a, uh, she was doing photography and that sort of thing, um, I, I developed my, uh, it was a, mostly a joke, my, the Tyler Smith theory of uh, uh, photographic artistry. Okay. Where she's like, just get close enough, just get super close to something and then tilt the camera just a little bit. Get super close, tilt, take a photo, art. Wow, uh, that, and so it was meant to be kind of facetious sure. and that sort of thing, but um, but kind of true, a little bit true. <laughs> um, and and sometimes I will I will try it out, uh, even like at Disneyland. It's just like take take something that is not that somebody wouldn't inherently want to take a photo of, zoom in, tilt, take a photo, Beautiful. gorgeous, nice. Um, and I feel like um, playtime. It doesn't necessarily do the zoom in thing or anything, but it takes never things, never does it do that. It, yeah, it's it's usually pretty wide. It's always wide. Um, it takes things that people would walk by and not think, and then you just take for granted, and that you would never feel like this would make a good photo or this would make an interesting film shot or something like that. Uh, and he frames it in such a way that finds the beauty in that thing and the absurdity mm -hmm. at the same time, and that's well put, something that well astounds me. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he walks through, you know, walks through the world with that eye and not and just didn't go insane thinking everything in the world was beautiful and absurd. Yeah, I, I feel like that's the takeaway from it. Oh, I wish I could find it. I didn't think to bring it up, but I wish I wrote a, an article actually on my uncle, and the very last paragraph was exactly how I feel about Jacques Tati. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll try to find it in a second. But um, yeah, I think his gift to kind of the world as a filmmaker 
is that, I mean, you talk, you hear people talk about, oh, he made me see something differently. Right. Um, this film really changed my view on something or yeah. how I look at something. He, the effect of watching one of his movies from beginning to end and then walking into your own world. Yeah. It's profound because you really are seeing things with a, a quirk, uh, mm-hmm. uh, with a, you see kind of the, the beauty of its humor. If yeah. I can meld those two things into one. Case in point, uh, I remember I was watching part of one of these movies on my computer at one of my old jobs, <clears throat> and I happened to have a desk that was sitting right next to a floor-to-ceiling window. And I was watching the movie, and I watched maybe 10 or 15 minutes of it, and then uh, I turned it off, and I was looking out the window, and I watched, wrapped, just wrapped, watching this worker like pull up in a truck next to a curb across the street, um, get out, um, get a ladder, put it up alongside this post, and change a light bulb. Mm-hmm. And mundane, yeah, the most mundane you can, thing you can think of, changing a light bulb, and uh, and I'm watching this happen, and and because now because of the pain of the window, because of the simplicity of what he's doing, how small he is in my frame, yeah, my POV, I can hear almost hear Jacques Tati music playing yeah. in my head, and I can see the humor, the funny, and I'm smiling at what is just I would turn away from, you know, yeah. I just oh he's changing a light bulb. Look off because you know from one from the angle that I was, you could see him walk to the other side of the van, of the truck, and uh, and then at one point all you could see was the ladder coming up and yeah. then moving, <laughs> and then leaning up and that's a Jacques Tati shot. It's yeah. like he finds that, and then makes that what you're looking at for thirty seconds and you, yeah. and with the music and with the the vibe of the rest of the movie, you go ah oh, that's funny, yeah. And it's not funny if you just showed someone the shot. It's funny because you're watching his world play out over 90 minutes or two hours. Yeah. And then you walk away, and everything is like that for like the rest of the day. I remember uh, the, the trailer for uh, Forrest Gump was, uh, the world will never be the same when you've seen it through the eyes of Forrest Gump. And I was like, you replace the words Forrest Gump with Jacques Tati, yeah. and I'm right there with you. Because exactly. he, do- he lives in the world we live in. You know, he's not, it's not a fantasy world or anything like that. It's not, you know, Wes Anderson does not, his characters don't necessarily live in the world we live in. It's a slightly, and in some cases, extremely heightened world. Uh, Jacques, Jacques Tati and his characters do live in this world, but they just look at it from a slightly different angle and with, uh, and again, beautiful and absurd at the same time. Absolutely. So, um, we can move on. I can't recommend... Jacques Tati enough to anyone. Yeah. I, again, all I've seen is playtime and I loved it. Yeah. So, uh, and, and in talking about, it, I realize I haven't seen it for a long time. I do own it on Blu-ray. I should watch it again. Uh, okay. Number one, number one, your Robert Hornack's favorite film of all time. Look, we've talked about these fancy French films, you know, we've talked about, uh, uh, these older Western films or mm. these Howard Hawks films oh, yeah. that you might not know. We've gone very, we've gone fairly obscure. So I have to assume the number one is going to continue that trend, a movie you have, people haven't heard about. They haven't seen no, you know, uh, didn't do great at the box office, uh, directed by a, a, a direct, you know, made by a director that, that some film people would know, but maybe not everybody. Uh, so what is your number one favorite film of all time? E.T. the Extraterrestrial. <laughs> all right. Directed by <laughs> Steven Spielberg. It's, it's embarrassing to say that. And I'll tell you why it's There's no reason it should be. It's wonderful. I think there are many reasons why it should be. Okay. And here's why. 
because uh, because the world is filled with many many great movies. We've talked about many of them today, mm-hmm. um, but there's uh, uh, to the power of ten. There's there's other ones that could fit that slot, but the problem is that this is a personal list and it's just such a, it's so ubiquitously known this movie mm-hmm. so ubiquitously loved um and so roundly uh, uh believed by many to be well done it's a well mm-hmm. done movie there's no reason to not like it um the problem is that it feels it feels also like you could categorize it as one of the most manipulative movies ever made because it's uh and also because it's uh, it's, it's so monetarily successful yeah you tend to want to steer away from saying that that's your favorite it's like oh you just like it because everyone likes it or because i made so much money um remember i was asking uh i work with a youth group at my church and i I was asking them recently in view of possibly doing like a film club type thing with these kids like what kind of movies can i show first or what what would be the first kind of movie that i could show that would kind of fit a lot of what they're saying and i so i asked them at at a youth group one night i said what are your favorite movies? And to a person, almost, they were all saying these brand new superhero movies that yeah. came out. Oh, that's, in my mind, I'm like, wait, of all the movies you've seen your entire life, that's your favorite movie? Yeah. Um, and later, I, I recognized that I need to forgive them for for that knee-jerk feeling because to this day, my favorite film is E.T., one of the highest grossing films of all time, and it was the most popular movie ever for like a year or two or three. For a long time, yeah. Back in the day. So who am I to say that you know, Iron Man can't be your favorite movie, or X-Men um, can't be your favorite movie of all time. I can't say that, because E.T. is my favorite. Um, it's embarrassing because when you when you kind of break down the structure of the film, what it's about, it and the music, everything about it is so manufactured to make you feel the way you do at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. that it almost feels like a slight, or it feels like giving credit where credit should not be due, to say it's like your favorite movie of all time. It's like, oh, oh, it's it, it was so successful at being manipulative that it's made you call it your favorite film of all time. Hmm. Wow, what a what a pushover you are. And so I, I have all these feelings kind of roiling in me all the time. Anytime somebody says, what's your favorite movie? And I want to say E.T., but then I don't. I'll say something else. I'll say Playtime, or I'll say yeah. you know, something that's obscure. Something that sounds smarter. Something that sm- sounds smarter. Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Mm. Tyler Smith. Um but here today, I will out myself by saying E.T. is my favorite film because it is. Um, I saw the movie when I was the same age, for the first time when I was the same age as Elliot. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have, as you can know from past episodes that I've been on and discussed my, my family life, you know that I did not have the best of childhoods. And right. so I related to Elliot in terms of his family situation, the broken parents, uh, I should say broken uh, separated parents. Um, the, that feeling that I described when I was talking about 400 blows, of uh, feeling kind of separate from most of the groups I was in, whether it was uh, the adult world or uh, even a lot of my friends. I was, I was played, uh, another case in point is I was placed in these, it's not me patting me, myself on the back, but I was placed in these AP courses in high school, advanced placement um, in English and in other classes. And I didn't understand why. To this day, I don't understand why because I was making C's and B's and C's in these classes. And I look around and I see all these incredibly smart people and I never thought of myself as a smart person. Like, I, I must be the, the last person to get in right. to this class. Like, they needed one more person to make it 30. 
uh, let Robert in. Yeah. So there I was in the AP classes, and I still feel that way. So all that sort of to shade the point that that I, I always felt that way growing up, just sort of separate. And that's how Elliot feels in this movie, and he gets yeah. a friend. You know, there's a friend that he gets to have, finally. Yeah. And... Um, the movie is manipulative, but it's, I, I believe, being Spielberg, it's manipulative in the right way. And it's its not so much manipulative as it is a man director using the skills that he has to perfection and not being able to help it. It's just like he's a great filmmaker. He knows exactly what to do with everything, every aspect of cinematic technique. And it all plays out in this very personal film that if you're in line with it, which apparently most of humanity was at the time, becomes a movie that everyone loves. And why should that be so wrong? Yeah, uh, this what you've been saying makes me feel like I want to do an episode on Battleship Pretension about manipulation uh, because for some reason the last couple of years I have I've found myself um, uh, arriving at a different place when talking about manipulation just in the in the same way that the, uh, as I have with the term melodrama or melodramatic or something like that melodramatic is often used as a negative term mm-hmm. just as manipulative is used as a negative term well it's a neutral term you know there are movies that are melodramas there's nothing inherently wrong with melodrama uh, if you have melodrama in a, if you have a melodramatic performance in an otherwise realistic dramatic film, then yes, that's a problem. Um, the worst of course is a manipulative melodrama. Oh my. Well, I feel like melodrama has to be manipulative. Like everything is heightened and and it's meant to make you feel a certain way. And so the idea of a movie being manipulative, well, let's see. Hitchcock was one of the most manipulative filmmakers ever. And one could say the best filmmaker of all time, Mm -hmm. according to the, Battleship pretension listeners. And according to most people, I would say. Sure. Um, Greatest entertainer filmmaker of all time. Sure. And how do you entertain people? You get them to feel something. You get them to feel engaged. And it could be a thrill. It could be a laugh. It could be crying. It could be whatever. Um, And and Spielberg, I think, is probably, probably right up there as far as ability to manipulate. But I don't think he manipulates cynically. Uh... I, I don't think there's a cynical bone in his body. Hmm. Um, I think uh, he looks at the stories that he's telling. He looks at the characters that he's uh, that he's shooting, and and he realizes, okay, so what is the inherent power of this story? How can I direct to that? How can I shoot that? How what music can I use um, so that the power that is already there is not even played up, but emphasized for maximum effect because I want people to feel this stuff, whether it be the music in Jaws. One could say it is very manipulative music. Sure. Um, or, uh, you know, it's so many aspects of, of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The way it's shot, the way the music plays uh, is meant to, f- you're meant to feel thrilled and like, look at this fun adventure. It's all manipulative. I mean, f- one could say film itself is manipulation. Sure. Art could be seen as manipulation. It's just, is it the intent of the, manip- of that manipulation? Yeah. 
or or just or yeah, just the the intent. What's what's behind it? The idea of or motivation. Um, I guess that's the same way of saying intent. But um, you know, it's one thing to have a studio executive or a cynical director be like, just put in this music and people will feel what I tell them to feel. <laughs> that's different. You know, that's I I have not earned this emotional response from the audience, so I will extract it. I don't think that's how Spielberg ever approaches his films. And I certainly don't think it's how he approaches E.T. And one could say, well, the story is manipulative. Like, E.T. dies. E.T., you know. It's just like, well, I guess that is one way of putting it. But if you want, let's let's take a look at, let's take a look at your top ten. E.T.'s arc is not remarkably different than King Kong's. Hmm. Uh, His death is not that much more manipulative than Spock's. Uh, The movies that we love... There's a re- uh, it's this is a this kind of gets down to a, an odd thing. I remember Dave and I were having a discussion about uh, I don't even remember what movie it was, but we were responding to somebody's critique that they're like, well, why are we watching? You know, what this person did, anybody could have done. They were ta- I don't remember. It might have been based on a true story. I don't remember what it was at all. And I remember thinking like, yes, but. The reason we're watching this character and not that character is because this character is the one that did it. If that character had done it, we'd be watching that character. And then suddenly that character is this character. There's a reason we're watching this story. There's a reason it's a story worth watching. Uh, and it's not merely, hey, look, an alien landed on Earth. That's Predator as well. What, what's the difference between E.T. and Predator? Uh, both of them are, are, are interesting. I think I probably enjoy Predator more than I enjoy E.T. Uh, because of the things that I like. But, you know, it's not merely alien come to Earth. It's he connects with this kid and he and then the world is hostile to him and they don't know what to do with him. They don't know how to take care of him. And eventually he dies. But, of course, it's that's not the end of the story. And so. I, I don't know. It's. And I guess a, a, a person could say that the death of E.T. is meant to make you feel something. And it's just like, yeah, but I, I think it's completely organic to the story that is being told. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about the stuff I've been saying? Like, No, I agree. You know, this I is your that, favorite film, and I'm the one talking about it. I'm no, sorry. no, no. Uh, I, I, I appreciate your defense of the word manipulative. Um, I, I think that I, I tend to put it in the pejorative category only because I feel, I feel silly. I mean, I just feel silly as a grown man to say that E.T. is my favorite film. And then I find reasons why I should feel guilty for it. And one of those reasons is just by calling it, by putting that label in a pejorative sense on this movie, um, as if, you know, I'm not, uh, I didn't succumb to it like a billion other people did. You know, it's like, I'm not alone. Um, But the reason I I would say that it it sits so high on this list Mm -hmm. is because more than any other movie, uh, I've talked about several that I, f- I feel like have kind of grown with me, or, yeah. uh, but this one, it really has because it's grown and it and it's stunted at the same time. Let me describe what I mean. Part of me is is like I I feel like I did when I was a kid and I saw it for the first time, mm-hmm. um, and I was just overwhelmed by it. When you don't know from cynicism, you don't know from manipulation. You're literally just going along for the ride, and yeah. these terrible things happen to this poor innocent creature. And you don't even realize that you're relating to the boy. Yeah, I was watching it because it's like one of the first movies that I saw that was. Uh, that 
I went, let me say it this way. I went into it thinking, oh, it's, it's E.T. It's like it's a science fiction movie. It's about an alien. Yeah. You know, and that's the kind of movie, as I said before, that I was into up to a certain age. And um, if it was science fiction, if it was an alien, then I was into it. Close Encounters, whatever it was. And <clears throat> But when I, when I actually got to the movie, and then the movie got to me, I realized that I later that I'd, I'd, I'd absorbed a movie that was actually a bridge from all of those movies that I was just watching as a kid and sort of absorbed me just because I like sci-fi yeah. or monsters or comedy, whatever it was. And now it's almost like it, tri- it tri- tripped something in me that I needed a real connection mm-hmm. to. Yeah. Maybe absolutely. part of that is just me as an adult looking back and kind of putting something on it of import. Yeah. But I, I really do believe that, 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 that happened, you know, that because I was so young when I saw it. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, it wasn't that long before I started watching like more adult films, not adult films. <laughs> oh my. Not, oh. not those. Um, but like a, a, a movies about adults mm-hmm. and not aliens. Um, movies about real people. And, and so in that sense, I, I feel like it kind of carried me into adulthood, but yet it still makes me feel like a kid when I see it. Yeah. And so it feels like it's grown up with me, but it's also helping me to kind of stay in a certain place when I watch it. I can sit and just listen to the last 15 minute. Uh, it's like this amalgam of like the last 15 minutes of the film from the yeah. time they jump on the bikes, escape the walkie talkie slash guns. Yeah. Depending on which version you're watching. Ugh, I hate that new version. Um, all the way to the end. I can just listen to the music. It's like 15 minutes. Yeah. And I can be sitting at my desk and I'll cry because I'm so in tune with the memory of this movie. I've seen it so many times and it affects me the exact same way every time as if I was 11 again. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, part of, I think, that reaction that I have to this day is because of my own life experiences since then. You know, Billy Joel says, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. Mm-hmm. Looks like it's time for a goodbye again. Say goodbye to Hollywood. Um, we've all experienced that. You know, you move, or your friend moves away, um, and you you experience loss. Somebody dies. You yeah. know, you sense loss. Your parents split up. One of them moves to a different state. You feel loss, and everyone has felt this. And so, whenever I see the movie, not only is it making me feel like I did when I was a kid, but it's making me feel like I was a kid times ten, yeah. because now I've actually experienced more moments. Like that moment when E.T. says, I got to go. Yeah. Elliot says, why don't you stay? You know, and, and there's just, the music is swelling. The lights are, lighting is perfect. The facial expressions are perfect. And that moment is so killer. It just kills me every single time. Yeah. Because I remember in those moments, almost every single time I lost somebody. Whether yeah. In any of those scenarios I described earlier. And I feel like I'm going to cry right now. Are you playing the music? No, you're not playing the music. Um, I can play it over this if you want. Uh, please in, do. In post. That would be awesome. Um, um, but no, I just I I, re- I recall I literally sit and watch the movie, and without thinking, I'm thinking about those moments when uh, my friend in fifth grade moved away, yeah, or when I had to m- move away from college or high school and say goodbye to my mom. You know all these things. Yeah. Um, Perhaps I'm belaboring the point, but you get my point, is that the, the, the movie still has such an incredible resonance to me every single time I watch it that it deserves to be at the top of my list. It has not failed me once yeah. that I've watched it. Yeah, it's... And I can watch it from beginning to end and never get tired of it. And I feel like the... the 
I feel like a, a mature film fan, and yes, listener, if you feel like you don't, this what I'm about to say does not apply to you, then uh, examine yourself. Um, <laughs> I feel like a mature film fan can look at movies that aren't theoretically aimed at them. You know, uh, E.T. could be called a, a, a kid's film. I would say it's more of a family film because there are certainly certain adult sensibilities. Um, but I think a, a, a film fan can recognize great filmmaking wherever it is. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why the movie Babe was nominated for Best Picture hmm. and why so many <clears throat> critics said it was like the best movie of the year. It's a great movie. Um, it's a wonderful movie. You know, it's uh, for me this year, my second favorite movie of the year is Paddington. Wow. I still have not seen that. I heard you mention it. It yeah. is delightful. And it's, and the filmmaking craft is there and I can talk all day about the filmmaking quality of it. Um, but underneath all of it, there does, for me, there does need to be a story that I can relate to and characters I can relate to. And, uh, and that's what it has. And, and E.T. has all that. There's a reason that these movies stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz and other, other movies that, that are for the whole family, uh, still hold up after all these years. And it's because the craft is there, but also there's a relatability. Yeah. And I don't know anybody. I think people might instinctively chuckle at the idea of, Oh, E.T. is your favorite film. And I feel like if you were to press them on it, if you were to say, well, why are you laughing? What do you think about E.T.? Mm-hmm. They would still say, yeah, it's a great movie, but I mean, it, how could you say it's your favorite? Well, you just said it was a great movie. So that that immediately separates it from, I'm going to say, 85% of the movies out there. And so then it comes down to personal resonance and, you know, and E.T. had a lot of resonance for a lot of people, mm-hmm. adults and children. And... And it is that kind of transitional film. I think a lot of the the great family films told from a kid's perspective will have elements of what it is to grow up. And this might sound overly dark, but to grow up is to experience loss, whatever that might mean. It could mean parents splitting up, somebody moving Mm -hmm. away, somebody dying. It could mean the loss of a dream, Uh, any number of things. It's, Hmm. it's, a deeper understanding of how things are as opposed to how we would like them to be. To that. Go ahead. Do you mind if I read this? Sure. I wrote a little bit about E.T. like a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, and it actually connects with what you just said. Okay. Um, talking about my experience watching it and kind of cutting into this uh, paragraph, it was nothing short of the bridge from my childhood to my young adulthood in terms of understanding my own feeling of isolation and in terms of being able to grope toward more adult-themed movies. Maybe that's a little too informed by my adult reflection. At the time, all the repeat viewings, I watched like five times in one summer, um, all the repeat viewings were more that I couldn't, were more that I just couldn't take. Wait, let me read that again. I'm sorry. I want to get this right. At the time, all the repeat viewings were more that I just couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. Maybe this time he'll stay, but every time he's got to go. I obviously couldn't have known it then, but maybe it was some kind of foreshadowing in my life and the life of everyone else who's a human being that nothing we have will necessarily stay. The little bit of dialogue between Elliot and E.T. before final liftoff and timpani is absolutely the stuff of our lives, our constant separation from the things we love, family, friends, our own childhoods, and it's the very stuff that can make me cry so unashamedly that it cannot be anything other than my favorite ending to any movie of any genre. 
There you go. Favorite ending of your favorite movie. Yes. Uh, That's my cap. And to, we to will, the entire list. And I think we will have to end there. Uh, much longer than we than Oops. I was hoping, but that's that, five to that seven happens. minutes per. I well, think is what we, it, we, it also took us a while to get to number that's true. ten. That's true. Uh, and then when we were talking about number ten, we talked about larger things as well. But anyway, uh, so yeah, we will leave it there, uh, listeners. Next week, Reed Lackey and I will be talking about the new film Krampus. Nice. Uh, in the spirit of the Christmas season. <laughs> I want to see when it. I, when I went to see that movie, I did not expect that there would be a more than one lesson episode out of it, but there oh, is. Oh, good. Sort of uh, like Babadook. You wouldn't expect that. Boy, yeah. But it's, everything about Krampus seems like a goofy, silly thing. Uh-huh. And at times it is, but it's also, there's a lot going I, on. I look there. forward to that episode and seeing it. Uh, but yeah, so you guys have time to see Krampus. It's still in theaters. Go and, go and watch it. And, you know, uh, even though it's a, a horror movie, uh, darned if I... Uh, was not in the Christmas spirit at the end of it. Awesome, great. um, So that'll be next week. Again, it'll probably be going up on Wednesday instead of Thursday. Uh, If you have any comments about uh, this episode, you can leave them at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me uh, on Twitter, at morelessons. You can also like us on Facebook. Uh, I think that is about it. Robert, thank you so much for for doing all of this, including not merely being on the show, but also organizing your top ten uh, which is, goes completely against your natural yeah. instincts. There's so. about a hundred runner-ups. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so thank you everybody for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>